You know, I didn't ever set out to be an elected official. I um, was a social worker in an immigrant and refugee community in my um, in my city, and over the years, I just got really frustrated because I felt like there was no there was really no way for these families to realize the American dream. They worked so hard every day and um, tried to do everything that we tell good Americans to do, and they just weren't able to get past that place of poverty and dependence to a place of self-sufficiency and interdependence. So I started lobbying at the state capitol to try and make things a little bit better for these kids, and um, that inspired me to run for office, or scared me to run for office. Um, I just thought I could do a better job than these guys, and so I ran and I won. Miss Cinema, Miss Cinema, no. Name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I'm joined as always by my producer Forrest. Uh, in uh, just a few minutes, I'm going to be speaking to uh, Thaddeus Russell, uh, having a uh, you know discussion about postmodernism and other things. I'm sure we'll get back to uh, arguing about politics by the end of it. Uh, but of course, the uh, the image you uh, just saw was former Green Party activist, uh, now um, center right uh, Democratic senator uh, Kristen Cinema, uh, doing like if people remember that Russell Crowe movie Gladiator, uh, where uh, the Emperor Commodus, you know, would would be like watching gladiators at the arena, and one of them would be about to key it out to like stick the sword in and he'd do this thing to like decide whether they live and die. It's like a thumb, uh, thumbs down. Yeah. And yeah. It's the gladiator. It's the gladiator thumbs down. And it's yeah. so fucking depressing to see those clips back to back. Um, the first one is from uh, a Jacobin article that David Sirota wrote. And I guess when, um, when she was a state legislator, uh, Kristen cinema served on the board of a progressive like organization that he founded because she was a progressive senator, like, an, and she was a, a Green Party, uh, she was in the Green Party and she was like an anti-Iraq war activist. Yeah, she's, she's worker. Really yeah, so. Yeah. And, and then and now she's doing the gladiator thumbs down <laughs> for $15 minimum wage. Yeah. Uh, which is, um, which is supported, uh, you know, I mean, even two years ago, so before the pandemic, you know, 2019 Gallup, they're about two thirds of Americans support, you know, making the minimum wage $15 an hour. Last November, $15 ballot resolution won in Florida. Trump won Florida, but $15 won, won by more. So that's that's a pretty broad base of support, but, it, you know, but uh, we can't have it. And, uh, you know, we can't have it passed by the Senate because it, uh, it gets down to um like a couple of these ghouls you know like 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 uh Kristen cinema doing you know doing this sort of like cutesy bratty version of the gladiator thumbs down for uh like tens of millions of workers you know getting a uh, you know getting a living wage yeah and i mean you know at least uh at least four other senators in the democratic party voted against it as well but you know just that like tap on the shoulder to mitch mcconnell and then followed by like the little curtsy and then the gladiator thumbs down is just such a, it's like a Marie Antoinette style, like obliviousness. You know what I mean? Like 
when when millions of people are suffering during a pandemic just to like turn it into this like cutesy uh photo op moment i guess in like the worst possible way like who the fuck is that for no exactly right like like who's gonna be like yeah, who's supposed to be watching this and think, oh, well, okay, let's see. I like that. I like that she's chummy with uh, with Mitch McConnell. I I, I like uh, I like that she's she's reasonable and you know doesn't want the plebs to get fifteen dollars, uh, you know. But like, you know, I like that she's having a little fun with it. Like, <laughs> you know, she's not bisexual going- icon right there. Like, <laughs> showing up, serving, serving looks, doing the thumbs down. You know, yeah, but yeah. even I mean. You know, liberals by and large support the fifteen dollar minimum wage. You know what I mean? The same, the same liberals who are uh, kind of like really into the aesthetic style that somebody like Cinema brings. Like, I, I don't think that. I mean, like, obviously, establishment it's Democrats. It's like in that Florida vote, it's mathematically impossible. There are just a significant number of Trump supporters who voted for a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Like, this yeah. is a, a pretty popular issue in general. Well, we we talked about this the first couple times I was on, like as a on screen producer. Producer, um, we kind of made the point that like once the Democratic Party kind of stops taking workers' interest into mind or stops being seen that way, you know what I mean? Like a lot of fucking people, including workers, are socially conservative, and somebody like Trump speaks to them, and a lot of people are fucking blackpilled and like feel like, oh, well, you know, these like something like the minimum wage might benefit me, but like I'm going to vote for Trump because fuck everything that's going on in my life right now in this like well, neoliberal yeah. capitalist system. And like, you know like, what I mean? So like, yeah. it, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not as, I don't know. It's not like, it's not as black and white, I guess, as, as they'd make it seem. Um, yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, lots of people like, you know, might even support something like a $15 minimum wage. They, they, uh, they vote for Trump because, They've got a bunch of culture war grievances that they identify with. You know, that's the that's kind of the the game, right? Get people to to vote based on that. They they you know, and they see him as somebody who's really triggering to the side of the culture war that they hate, and yeah. uh, and also because frankly, um, you know, this gets back to the Thomas Frank. You know, what's the matter with Kansas stuff? Uh, pe- like most people just don't believe on a visceral level that their lives can get better due to politics because yeah. their experience is a neoliberal hellscape that shows them that's not going to happen. Uh, which and is- then I, I quote, I quote the um, Griscom quotes us all the time because it was on TMBS, but um, I, I don't know. I've taken to quoting it too. Uh, Ronan Burtonshaw coming on and saying that, you know, the goal of the left should be to convince, uh, convince the working people that politics can change their life. Like that really but, is. The, that the- is exactly right. Yeah. And, and that's the big challenge. You know, it's, it's not getting people to agree with you, uh, you know, because least, most people do. I mean, you know, on, on stuff like a $50 yeah, minimum wage. The social democratic basics, most people agree with it, right? That's not the problem. Uh, the problem is getting them to take seriously the idea that these things are ever going to happen in the first place. Yeah. Um, and and I mean something like something like cinema doing the the thumbs down makes it so fucking obvious that you know or or it 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 serves to like kind of create like this nihilistic feeling even more so than it already does that even like somebody that's been touted as like this this socially representative uh like like magnificently dressed person is just like fuck workers like I I'm not I'm not doing this. Um, yeah. but, but then also the thing yeah. is that people yeah. people in Arizona aren't suffering um, the same way that, you know, people who, who rely on the federal minimum wage are because they did pass Prop 206. And it's not 
a $15 minimum wage. It's not a living wage, but like, you know, their, their minimum wage is higher than the rest well, of the country. Uh, this, this is actually like a perverse thing that like, uh, if this had passed, that would have brought the national minimum wage uh, up to like in a year or two, it would be like almost uh, what the, because they're phasing into $15 gradually. And yeah. Almost what Arizona is now. Uh, so even from like a perspective of, of like the state's, uh, you know, interests, like if you're worried about, you know, companies leaving, you know, to get lower wages in a different state or something, even in that sense, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, you know, I mean, it makes sense maybe for the perspective of, um, you know, national companies, you know, that might donate to her. Uh, but uh, but I, I do want to point out this, this kind of brings us to uh, the, uh, the other big uh, thing we were going to talk about, uh, you know, before uh, before Thaddeus comes on, which is that it is worth noting. I mean, obviously, you know, Kristen Cinema is a disgusting hell creature, like um, who's like the fact that she went from like the Green Party and the Code Pink to this. You know, it's like um, I mean, this this is some this is some just 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 body snatcher evil shit. But yeah. Uh, that, um, but it is worth noting that, you know, who, like, you know, who else wasn't voting for this, like, is like, you know, Josh Howley, like, uh, any of these people in, uh, the Republican party, uh, who use sort of superficially economically populist rhetoric, who, uh, who oh, say, they never, they never, they, they'll never support that i mean you know what i mean like a like a minimum wage increase they'll never support any you know base level pro worker policy um no no abso yeah. ab absolutely not so uh, i'm going to uh show the uh the clip of uh well actually i guess before you show the clip let's just say like usually when i use this combination of words it's ironic you know like a uh, friend of the show ben shapiro shit like that uh but um not ironically Right, the the person about to criticize is a uh, is a friend of the show. He's been on the show, uh, and and, he's and and a hero, and should be a hero um, to to the left. I mean, you know, like uh, it, like the things that he's accomplished are are really amazing. Um, well, I mean, one of them just came to fruition literally today, like which is that um, in large part due to uh, the investigative journalism you know, that, that he did, the, the, the leaks that he, he took serious risk to report in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, Lula da Silva uh, just uh, had, uh, you know, they, all of that stuff was voided. His political rights have been restored. The, you know, he's now clear to run again in 2022. Uh, you know, he would have won, you know, the Brazilian election. Uh, in, you know, the, you know, the last time if he'd been allowed, uh, if he'd been allowed to run, uh, and and that is to a great extent, you know, be uh, because of uh, of Glenn Greenwald, you know, because of uh, because of that reporting in Brazil, uh, the you know then uh, you know the uh, the Snowden leaks. I mean, like, yeah, this is somebody who has um, like really like just in human terms and in terms of political things that should matter to the left is worth any like five hundred of the people in, you know, media who, who sort of snipe at him and, you know, and, and yeah. uh, all that he's, stuff. He's, he's worth more than the full, the, uh, the full lineup of uh, MSNBC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> now that said, 
right? I like Glenn. I deeply admire Glenn. Uh, one of the um, look. One of the first conversations I ever had with uh, with Michael Brooks was about how much we both admire Glenn Greenwald. That's not going to change because of any sort of like you know what show he goes on or like any like takes that he has on social media that I disagree with. Uh, but I, I also think that not for the sake of you know piling on or anything like that, but because the actual substance of what's being talked about is important, I do want to talk about this this comment he made uh, in this this daily caller conversation about socialism because because I think this matters. So if you want to yeah. Show- And, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, but I believe your, your husband is affiliated, affiliated with the Socialism and, and, and Liberty Party. Party. That's correct, right? Sorry, Sorry about that. that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's exactly, exactly correct. correct. Okay. No, I just want to double check before I ask this. So why do you think the idea of socialism, both as it's framed by the right and the left in America, you know, varies so drastically from what we've seen in, you know, Brazil, other Latin American countries, even countries in Europe? Is that just because of you know, the, the the huge play that identity politics has in America. I'm curious about that distinction and how it's evolved into something that doesn't really look like socialism anywhere else in the world, at least in my opinion. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, in Brazil, for instance, the Workers' Party was founded by Lula. Uh, he grew up in extreme poverty. He was, uh, I think, the eighth of nine children. He was illiterate until the age of 10. He went to work in a factory, famously lost one of his fingers, became a very charismatic labor leader, um, and ran for president three times and almost won more or less each of the three times, but didn't. And then the fourth time he ran in 2002, he realized, like, if I want to get elite sectors of society not completely against me, but even kind of comfortable, I need to moderate my economic policy. And so he ran as his vice presidential running mate with a banker, an actual, you know, austerity advocating banker just to calm international markets and make people less concerned about what his presidency would look like. And when he got into to power, you know, people were petrified that he was going to become like Cuba or Venezuela. He was a supporter of, of Chavez and, and Castro, but he always said, my form of leftism is not the one that erodes civil liberties. It's, it's not communism. I believe that there should be a free market. We need that to generate growth. I just believe in a more equitable distribution of resources. And he innovated these social programs that even, you know, kind of like think tanks, capitalist think tanks and journals like The Economist to this day praise, um, including one where uh women who are single mothers who are raising children get a monthly payment as long as they can demonstrate that their children have been vaccinated and are regularly going to school so it incentivizes them to make sure their children aren't lost into the society um are doing the things that make them healthy and educated and only then do they get this payment um and brazilian growth skyrocketed under lula uh the rich did very well and got very comfortable with him which is why he overwhelmingly got elected I think that's what really what you're seeing. I mean, obviously, the word socialist carries a lot of baggage from the Cold War. It evokes on purpose the Soviet Union or, uh, you know, Castro or or Chavez, um, Pol Pot, people like that, kind of the mall. Um, but I think what you're seeing is this kind of uh, hybrid socialism that really is about nothing more than 
trying to sandpaper the edges off of neoliberalism. And I, you know, would describe a lot of people on the right as being socialists. I would consider Steve Bannon to be a socialist. I would consider the, the 2016 iteration of Donald Trump, the candidate, to be a socialist based on what he was saying. I consider Tucker Carlson to be a socialist. You know, now if you have uh, Governor Cuomo who wants to give, you know, tens of millions of dollars to Amazon to bring an office to New York, you have AOC, an actual self-identified socialist, standing up and saying, this is outrageous. And then you have Tucker Carlson going on his Fox News program and saying, I agree with her completely because I think people are realizing that neoliberalism doesn't work. And I think the real right-left uh, difference to the extent that those terms even have any currency or coherence Mm -hmm. I think you see in France, too, like Marine Le Pen, you know, the fascist far right candidate, when she ran both times, she ran to the left of Macron for sure. But even the French socialists in terms of wanting to give workers better benefits and better pensions. So I think the vision is, you know, you have this kind of right wing populism, which really is socialism that says we should close our borders, not allow unconstrained immigration and then take better care of our own working class people and not allow this kind of transnational global corporatist elite to take everything for themselves under the guise of neoliberalism. We should distribute that more to workers, which is basically what Bernie Sanders was saying, right. you know, 10 years ago, the left in America in the United States okay. is always anti-immigration. When I started writing about politics. All right. That's, that's good. Um, that's fine. Tough so, to watch a little bit <laughs> yeah, at some point. <laughs> yeah. So, so look, I mean, a, a couple things about that, like this. Um, so the first one is, and I, and I do think this is true, right? Like this is not just uh, the fact that like, obviously for all the reasons that we talked about earlier and the fact that he was like, you know, really like one of the main two or three people who were like still, uh, banging on about, you know, uh, about wars and civil liberties, you know, during the Obama years, you know, when liberals had collective amnesia about this. And, you know, obviously I like Glenn, I admire Glenn, but like, I think even apart from that, you know, before we get to all the things that I think are, are wrong, right, in this clip, which is, you know, I mean, cards on the table, I think is pretty much everything, you know, in this book. <laughs> uh, but um, I think that... I think it is I think that what is true is that ninety nine percent of people were uh, who had a reaction to this were reacting to the daily caller social media managers like six word you know yeah. click, clickbaity headline yeah and, and watching watching through the full answer to clip it for this um what kind of kind of kind of softened the way I felt about what he was saying, I guess. Yeah, well, because I think that uh, it is clear in context. And again, I think what he was actually saying is still wrong, right? I'm going to get to that in a moment. But, mm -hmm. like, uh, but I think when people sort of saw the headline, you know, Glenn Greenwald says Tucker Carlson is a socialist, uh, <laughs> you know, they had the obvious, you know, reaction to, uh, to that. Uh, but I think that uh, in the clip, he does actually say, look, this is not really historically, you know, what socialism means, but in American politics, often there's this sort of watered down definition, which is really about sanding off the, you know, the harsh edges of, uh, of neoliberalism. And so far, like, 
Uh, that's something that like, you know, any, like just think of any like ultra left account you might follow on Twitter. Yeah. That, yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the post left, uh, the post left idea kind of. That... Well, well, but I mean, I think so far, I mean, this is, this is just like, I mean, look, like what I just summarized, like Jamie Peck could have said that, right? Like that's yeah. not like, uh, I guess I'm jumping ahead with that. Yeah. Kind of joke, yeah, but... the, yeah. I, I think, <laughs> think your reaction to is a little bit different, although I think that's also there. Where I think it goes off the rails, well, okay. So I think he gets something important wrong, but it's not really where it goes off the rails. And then he goes off the rails, right? The important thing I think he gets wrong, and to be fair, a lot of people get this wrong, right? Is that, look, let's not actually accept that semantic drift. You're right that sometimes this is, you know, it is used that way. Uh, but, um, but it is like socialism actually means something and that word is worth fighting for. I mean, like that's- I that's remember just, when it used to mean something. <laughs> yeah, damn it. Uh, you know, also, you know, also I think that there is, um, you know, that I think that like, if anything, I mean, you know, I mean, look, I'm generally not one to get hung up on semantics. I, I think that arguments about how to use words are almost always proxies for other more interested arguments. But also in this case, like we are actually at a time when there is like a real socialist left in the United States for the first time in a very, very long time, yeah. a very small fledgling one. And it is worth making the distinction and say, no, this doesn't just mean sanding off the edges of neoliberalism. And sometimes a, a confused one that doesn't quite uh, grasp terminology. So I think that no, makes no, it that's doubly, that's doubly important to be precise about it. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of people... Lots of people who think of themselves as socialists are imprecise about the terminology, and they they just sort of mean well. Uh, I sort of vaguely associate this word with um, wanting the United States to have more programs, like a country like Sweden, exactly, uh, like Sweden has, or they sort of know that it's a word that has some connotation about questioning the current economic realities in a very basic way. They like that and they respond to that, but they certainly don't have any conception of like, we should have workers control the means of production. And, and that's fine. I'm, I'm willing to work with that. Right. I think that's a good starting place. It's obviously not where I want them to end, but I mean, I think it's, it's a fine place to start. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'll, I'll take it. Right. You know, and, and then try to build on Fucking it. better than what we have right now. So yeah, yeah, totally. Right. And, <laughs> people start fighting for those things again rather than fighting about words you know maybe they can get to the point where they'll uh, you know they'll they'll be willing to uh, to go beyond that or, or they'll they'll see more of an important distinction uh between uh yeah no exactly i think that like a lot of what people a lot of what a lot of people mean by socialism is really just social democracy they don't have a conception of a kind of socialism that comes after capitalism and that's a big problem. And like, honestly, I think this is kind of the higher order version of what we were talking about earlier about how, um, you know, so many people don't think that they can get, um, like they, they just on a really basic visceral level, don't believe that capital, that uh, politics can make their lives better. Yeah. Uh, you know, because of this sort of bone deep capitalist realism, you know, they don't believe that, that, that there's anything that would happen to change basic economic realities because, all of their experience of politics tells them that, well, maybe politicians will say things that make it sound like they're going to make their lives better, but really, uh, you know, the 1% calls the shots and that's just how it's going to be. And it's like complaining about the weather, you know, they're just yeah. giving, right? like there aren't any riots in the streets about 
not having Medicare for all because people don't take it seriously the way that they take and, it. And I think in, in a lot of people's cases, they see politics as just what politicians decide to do and not as the pressure that, you know, collectively workers can put on um, the situation they're in collectively, uh, the, the, what, what they can put on bosses, what they can put on politicians, what they, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's something kind of disconnected through a phone going on in a city that they've never been to. No, totally. So, um, and then, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that there is like a higher order version of that, which is so like right now we're just talking about like regular people who might tell a pollster that they like the idea of Medicare for all. But like then I think even when you get into uh, the the actual left, you know, people to the left of liberalism, you know, people who uh, would be like hardcore Bernie people, people who might even read Jacobin or, you know, watch shows like this ones in some cases, right? That uh, – like, I think a lot of those people, you know, they maybe like the sound of socialism, but they don't really take seriously the idea that there is something that's possible that comes after capitalism. Yeah. Because, you know, even if they've gotten to the point where they take the idea that we could really have social democracy seriously, they haven't made that other adjustment. And so and it's hard. It's hard to make that adjustment. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, it's, it's absolutely hard to make it. I mean, like, this is something that I think the left needs to really spend time on. This is actually one reason why. You know, I think that we need to, um, you know, that we need to sort of leave behind the, uh, you know, Karl Marx thing about not writing recipes for the cook shops of the future. I think we need to show people some recipes just so they believe that they'll have something to eat at the other end. Yeah. Uh, and, and give people a, a detailed idea of, of what that kind of society might look like. So none of this is the main problem with this clip, but I think it is worth saying because it's important. The main problem with this clip is that it's just not true that Tucker Carlson or uh, these, who are the Steve Bannon, uh, any of these figures that he named actually in any remotely, uh, you know, meaningful sense. I read that in the Zizak voice. My God, we need the recipes now. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Verso in uh, 2022, uh, get get that for being Bhaskar and Mike Beggs. so, uh, yeah, I mean, look, and, and obviously not that our rec- our forthcoming uh, recipe is the only one out there. Uh, I'm not too familiar with Verifacus and stuff on this. Thank you for the super chat, Dave. But I, I am. Um, but, uh, but you know, obviously Michael Albert, who's been on the show before, he talks about some of his ideas about this. Uh, David Schweikart, uh, he has that book, After Capitalism, I was recommending. Uh, you know, stuff's out there, but like, I think that's something that we need to do more of and do a better job of popularizing. Now, capitalist that, realism, I think, is the one that I always kind of go to as like, yeah, a, you know, yeah. the, the underline of like, is there any alternative? Uh-huh. Yeah, and Fisher isn't really sketching out, you know, like that alternative in detail. God, it's a great book, but uh, no, but he's talking about escaping, kind of escaping the matrix that makes it hard to envision the that as a future. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, no, just the, the the feelings that get us into that state where we can't even envision something that no, I, I think yeah. it, I think Fisher is very good at diagnosing like the problem with it right like I, I you know what I would also say is I think that you need to actually do some recipe writing as part of the yeah here, he's kind of saying like somebody's got to have a recipe out there but yeah 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 exactly um so so yeah look the main problem with what he's saying and this is not at all unique to Glenn. I think a lot, you know, there are, unfortunately, it's a widespread uh, delusion. And in fact, it's a delusion that lots of people 
like lots of people who even have different ideas about what to do about it still have the same problem, which is this belief that that right-wing economic populism is a real thing, which just is not that like, if at least if we're talking about the United States, I think maybe if you get into talking about like some, you know, some developing country, some like sort of like ex-Soviet kleptocracies with like very weak, like local ruling classes, then I think there's like a little bit more room to maneuver for, for people on the right to like actually, you know, to actually do things that, that, that run counter to, you know, to the interests of those local capitalists. You know, I don't want to exaggerate that point either, but I mean, I think it's probably more true there than it is, you know, sure as hell more true there than it is like here or like Canada or the UK or any society like that, but certainly restricted ourselves to the United States. It's just total bullshit. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, none of these people actually are interested in doing anything to sand off uh, the the rough edges of neoliberalism. And, and the, and that example, and, and again, there are people who believe that they are, who believe that right-wing economic populist is genuine, who also think that like right-wing economic populists are fascists and that we should be terrified of them. And, you know, but they, they'll, they'll say things like, oh, see, even the, uh, you know, even the right agrees with a lot of your economic stuff, you know, like that's like, that's something you see too. Uh, but that's also wrong, right? It's wrong no matter who says it and where they put it, the pluses and minuses. Yeah. It's just not true. Right. So, Sure, Tucker Carlson might have scored some points by criticizing like New York for you know rolling out the red carpet for Amazon. Uh, but just you know, but like what concretely is uh, like is anybody proposing to do to make the lives better for Amazon workers, to make it easier for them to join a union, to force Jeff Bezos to pay them more money, to get them, you know, better healthcare. What is, is anybody suggesting to do for that? And Tucker Carlson supports nothing. Uh, You know, like Steve Bannon, you know, I always, you know, forgive me if people have heard me bring this up before, but I mean, I really like, it always amazes me thinking about this. Like Steve Bannon had a, uh, had a, uh, uh, this debate uh, that he did um, uh, 2019, I want to say, uh, with um, David Frum uh, at the um, uh, the Monk debates in Toronto. It's like a real, like serious, high flutin kind of debate thing. And in that, in that, right, like uh, the entire thing was just. Bannon using sort of vaguely populist sounding rhetoric about, you know, working class deplorables and Froome uh, using a bunch of rhetoric kind of insinuated that Bannon as if it was a fascist. But the thing that always amazed me about it is they never actually got around to talking about any policy. And then I thought about it later. I was like, well, of course they did. They're both fucking Republicans. They probably agree on like 99% of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and if you, and actually that's why I agree with what Michael said at the time that like, it's good that Bannon was on Red Scare because at least the Red Scare girls asked him, hey, if you're such a populist, why don't you support Medicare for all? And then he just kind of flailed around and he didn't have a good answer to it. Like if you look at the fine print, like Bannon's so-called economic populism, uh, and and honestly, this bothers me much more than calling it, you know, like then on the assumption that there is real right-wing economic populism this issue of, okay, whether you want to call that socialism or not, like 
obviously I think that's ridiculous for all the reasons we were talking about, but like I'm much more bothered by the claim that there is real right-wing economic populism, which there just is not. That like Bannon's populism, right? Like what he wanted, if Bannon had gotten 100% of his way in the Trump administration, what he was talking about was like raising the top marginal tax rate up to like, you know, pretty close to what it was in the Clinton administration in the 90s and like using some of that for infrastructure. That's fucking it. He doesn't support Medicare for all. He doesn't support, you know, like he, he does certainly doesn't support free college. He doesn't support, you know, universal daycare. You know, he, he doesn't support changing the laws to make it easier to uh, to join unions. He doesn't support any of that. Like yeah. it's the, the whole thing. The whole thing is just, is, is just nonsense. And like, again, I don't even, I'm not even saying any of this, say like I've got any sort of narrative about how, you know, Glenn Greenwald is becoming a right winger or something like, you know, people have been saying that for years. He never changes any of his, any of his actual positions. I, I don't think that, right. Like, and, and, and as far, I disagree with him about this, but like, I always have like back in like 2011, when I was reading, you know, Glenn's stuff all the time at Salon. Uh, yeah, I think that was still Salon, not the Guardian in 2011. He, uh, he had like, I remember every once in a while he'd say something in a column like, oh, you know, the, the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street uh, are, you know, that there's like this this commonality, you know, because of like anti-establishment stuff about, you know, the uh, about, uh, you know, corporations and the state being in bed together, even if they understand it differently or something like that. And, I, and like, I thought that was a mistake then, right? I think this is a mistake now. I think that this idea that there's some sort of like big realignment, you know, in partisan terms on, on economic issues uh, is, uh, is just false, right? Like, like it's, it's, it's not like, like, th- again, the point is not to, uh, to demonize Glenn for, for, for thinking something that I think is false. It's, it's just that like, as a matter of fact, I think the, you know, Glenn's great, but what he's saying here is wrong and i think it's important to understand why it's wrong and to be able to explain why it's wrong mm-hmm. like you know to and, and a lot of people yeah. have that definition or that you know uh believe the the class like the alignment realignment like uh philosophy you know what i mean like that's kind of what the whole idea of the post left is i mean like this idea that we've kind of transcended right right and left politics and we we're kind of in an age of like workers populism which you know, has like even even if you even if you were to concede that right wing populism exists, like let's say, you know what I mean, like it still wouldn't bring us anywhere near what we want to do as like a project. No, no, absolutely not. Um, so uh, I, I think just to just to round off the segment, uh, we um, we have a clip from uh, last year. Uh, there was a, a debate between Glenn and uh, Nathan Robinson on uh this exact subject uh now i i I think that um you know for all the reasons you know been talking about right like like i i am i am much closer to you know to to nathan's uh side of that that argument you know about about whether there is meaningful right-wing economic populism but i think that uh michael makes a lot of really good points in this clip uh and the way he's talking about it is exactly the way that we should talk about these issues. Uh, well, actually, I mean, okay. One more thing on Glenn. Again, Glenn is attacked constantly by people who 
you're going to need to reveal a, 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 a Lava Jato and a Snowden in order to approach the contribution he's been on. Okay. I have nothing but respect for Glenn Greenwald. And I also, in that same interview, he called Tucker Carlson's response to the BLM uprising grotesque. And I think he is very consistent in a view that he has of inside outside politics. That's not our view. We have a view about capital versus labor. And that is a big, you know, substantive difference. And I think it's actually even reflected in some of the conversations, the great conversations. I mean, Glenn broke the Lula story. I cannot emphasize how big a contribution that is, but he still, you know, I could look at the whole Lula story through the lens of basically top-down class politics. And I wasn't interested in any corruption narrative, right? And I'm not saying, I'm not making a question of who's right or who's wrong, but that's a fundamentally different way of looking at politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, you know, a lot of things get conflated under that umbrella with left-wing politics. But if you have a serious material class dimension that anchors labor, ironically, for all of the dumb accusations of class reductionism or whatever, it does basically eliminate right-wing populism because right-wing populism posits all sorts of imagined national communities and various other fantasies and does not have a labor analysis. Yeah, I mean, that. there we go, right? Like uh, that, I, I think that, and that's even like that last part. Um, yeah, so there's the, Part of that that we didn't watch just now, it's okay. But you know, he he does uh, he does introduce you know Michael Style some complications into the whole you know how to think about whether there is there actually is such a beast as right wing populism you know uh, question, uh, and he makes some good points there too. Yeah, well, it, a half hour. It's a half hour long. Uh, obviously, we're going to watch the half hour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I think that I think that last point was the key one, right? That even much more meaningful right-wing economic populism of a kind that probably can't exist in a country like the United States, uh, where the you know where the local capitalist class you know is incredibly powerful and has really deep roots, and and so uh, you don't have this sort of you don't have right-wing figures having this kind of like being able to sort of do the Victor Orban thing and have like room to maneuver as like these Bonapartist kinds of figures who can like exercise a lot of independent power. Uh, so I think that, again, even if it did exist in the, in the way that it probably can't exist here, because the only possible basis, uh, you know, the only possible basis for uh, a, a successful left project is an organized working class. And, and there's just, you know, like, and there's just no equivalent, you know, big, like, this is what's one of something I was talking about with Crystal Ball about when she was on the show the first time that uh, that there's just no like obviously if a bunch of people who sincerely held really deep and really good left wing views were elected to every office, there would still be this problem of how to overcome you know the uh, inevitable uh, resistance from capital to enacting its agenda. Uh, a, a really militant organized labor movement could fill that role. There's nothing equivalent that could fill that role on the populist right. So I think that mm -hmm. the, I think the distinction he makes at the end of the clip uh, is exactly right. And even the best forms of right-wing populism uh, lack uh, lack that, right? And, I, and I'll just say before we switch gears, you know, that, that um, 
you know, somebody in the chat, you know, there's stock, oh, should, you know, should you go easy, you know, on Glenn? And that's not the point, right? Like, I think, um, you know, one last, you know, without making this a, you know, TMDS clip show, we're not going to play any more clips, but they have, uh, but I think uh, when uh, when Michael's interviewing uh, Adolf Reed uh, last, last year, uh, maybe 2019, I think last year, but uh, when, uh, when that happened, Reed had a really good line at the end that I think applies here, where it just says, this is just too Protestant a way of thinking about politics. It's, it's yeah. all like trying to figure out who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I mean, like, obviously there are people that I like and there are people I don't like, but, you know, I'm not primarily interested in trying to figure out, you know, whether, you know, even if I believed that these destinations existed, you know, like I'm, I'm not primarily interested in whether Glenn Greenwald is going to heaven, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm interested in breaking down like what he's getting right and what he's getting wrong and, and responding to the substance of what he's saying, not trying to peer into his soul and, um, and make a moral inventory. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I look, I look at, uh, I look at kind of some of the great, like some of the great, um, uh, whistleblower publishers in history, I guess. And there's been a lot of them, you know what I mean? Like publishers that are willing to bend over backwards or journalists that are willing to bend over backwards and put themselves in danger. I don't think I'd want to know every single one of their thoughts, every single beef that they got into in like the 1800s or 1900s. You know what I mean? Like every single opinion they had and kind of Twitter puts us in this place where you kind of see way too much of somebody rather than just kind of hearing these her or reading these heroic stories as they happen and i think that there's a lot of that with glenn greenwald because there's a there's a lot of like you know filler with anybody you know what i mean like like filler tweets or like little beefs or petty squabbles that he gets into or like even stuff like even interviews like this and you know i i'm personally i'm not too concerned with that except i mean except yeah. to do something like this yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I, I mean if the actual content of it involves something that like is a ideological claim that's important you know can, yeah. like, talk about the claim and evaluate it uh and and um you know and, and that's a useful exercise you know trying to you know mm -hmm. try to sort out on some sort of minute by minute basis exactly how you feel about somebody i think is something we could do a lot less of uh i want to just bring something up. that we shouldn't and something that we shouldn't have to yeah do. yeah so, absolutely so <laughs> Um, you know, and look, it's like, there was this thing that, uh, that happened over the weekend with, uh, with Matt Brunig, uh, where he had, um, he, he tweeted out this, uh, this right wing meme. Uh, I don't think we have the image, but it's, uh, it's, it's like, I think it's supposed to be like Xi Jinping, like sprinkling COVID, uh, on the world. Obviously anybody who has like two minutes acquaintance with anything that Matt Brunig thinks doesn't think he was tweeting that out because he like made it or because he agreed with it. Yeah. You know, he was using Twitter in a slightly retro way, uh, which is to say that he, uh, that the sort of social norms of it now are, you can't tweet something like that without making it explicit that you're tweeting yeah. it to, uh, to make fun of it. It's kind uh, of like a, a constant job interview or like a, something like that. You know what I mean? Like the way that you have to think about Twitter almost, if you're like in any kind of politics or media or anything like that, like, you, yeah. you have to always be post. I mean, like you can post obviously like shit posting, but like it has to be in a context that nobody can like possibly <laughs> misconstrue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, uh, Peter Coffin had a good line about how it's like, uh, the, pan the uh, panopticon is an app 
you know, that's the, uh, uh, the giant, you know, surveillance thing, you know, that, uh, that, uh, Foucault talks about. Uh, so anyway, enough of that, uh, before we bring on Thaddeus, uh, let's, let's just do uh plug a couple of quick things, uh, coming up in various ways. So, uh, first and, uh, well, actually here, let's, let's do it in this order for, for our purposes now. Uh, cause it, it, uh, it has to do with some of the themes that we've been talking about this overly Protestant approach to politics. So, uh, should just mention canceling comedians, uh, you know, while the world burns is, uh, is coming out on uh, May 1st. Uh, you can pre-order it right now. Uh, the place that I recommend pre-ordering it from, uh, is uh, red Emma's it's a worker cooperative bookstore in Baltimore. You can order books from online. So that's uh, redemmas.org. Uh, should, uh, should also mention, uh, the, uh, school for social and cultural change class, uh, in April and May. That's not just me, Noam Chomsky, lots of other people are, uh, are teaching those. So that's going to be, uh, logic for, uh, left-wing, uh, debaters and activists. So we can have, uh, we'll, uh, we'll actually make graphics for all these things at some point, but anyway, just Google uh, school for social and cultural change. Uh, and you should, uh, and you should find that. Uh, and, um, and then as far as, uh, what's coming up, I uh, should say on Wednesday for the, uh, the movie live stream, Forrest and I and Ryan Lake are talking, uh, about, uh, Kate Fear, uh, the Scorsese one for Friday, the uh, philosophy Friday live stream with, uh, Jennifer. Uh, I am, uh, we're going to be talking about the ship of Theseus and personal identity thought experiments on, uh, Saturday. I think we're going to, uh, unlock and release, uh, the uh, second, actually, uh, back in January, patron bonus episode that we did, which was Dasha from Red Scare, uh, and then that was, a, uh, that was a good one. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, absolutely, and actually very, very relevant because there was a uh, there was this uh, hit piece of the Daily Beast uh, that uh, that came out today. You know that you know mentioned her and a bunch of other people. Yeah, I read I read that this morning. I was going to bring it up when you were talking about her um, Red Scare's Steve Bannon interview, but then I you know got lost yeah, yeah. In part of the conversation. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe we can talk about it later after Thaddeus. Uh, but uh, but then uh, and then on Sunday for the Sunday night debate break, breakdown live stream, I'm going to have uh, uh, Brett Lingle, who people might remember from the uh, the debate on uh, Tuesday, uh, and uh, Rob Larson, who is a, um, a community college economics professor. He's the uh, uh, he's he's kind of the house economist at Current Affairs. And uh, we're going to be watching uh, Destiny's uh, debate with Michael Albert, uh, which is something that uh, I've, I've never really blocked out time to watch before. But it's something that when I started this this series, I always wanted to to do. Uh, that, sounds, so, that sounds like a shit show. After yeah. our after our interview with him, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on Monday, uh, Nobiki Konst uh, is uh, is going to be uh, going to be on in the first half. And uh, Kenzo Shibata and uh, Paul Prescott, you know, we're gonna be on the second half. So uh, I'm, going be- on, I'm going on Kenzo's show on Sunday, like this. So the day before him and Paul would be um, scheduled to come on, he's doing like an all producers episode where he's having like his producers and like a couple other producers. And uh, so we're doing that, and then we're gonna do back to back the conversation with with Paul and him about uh, about teachers unions. So it's kind of like a career. A career. Yeah. Uh, his show about your job, and he'll do one yeah. <laughs> uh, about his job. So, uh, should be good stuff. But I'm very excited. Let's bring on Thaddeus Russell.
Hello. Hi, Thaddeus. How are you doing? Pretty well. I got to say one thing off the bat, though. Glenn, Glenn Greenwald is most certainly going to heaven. <laughs> I, I can't remember. I honestly can't remember the last time I disagreed with something Glenn said. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. I, I, I am shocked that any, anyone on the left has any problem with Glenn Greenwald, actually. Well, I, I think that they, I, I like Glenn. He's been on the show. I, I think he, as somebody, I really admire his, uh, okay. his journalism and, uh, and his consistency on a lot of things. You know, there are things that I think that he's, he's wrong about. I suspect that if we dug into it, there might be things that you think he's wrong about. Um, you just, but, I know you don't want to talk about this with me, but can you just name one? We don't have to talk about it. I'm just curious. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, I think he, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so my my straw. I think that he has uh, like standard social kind of social democratic kinds of beliefs on on economic issues. I think you'd have some disagreements there. Oh, oh, yeah, no, no. I meant what you have beef uh, beef with. Oh, sorry, sorry. That, okay, yeah. What I what I disagree with him about. Yeah. Uh, so I think on policy, almost nothing. Right. Like like maybe maybe nothing. Like I'm, I'm not you know. But I yeah. think. In terms of evaluations of different political actors, I think that he, uh, I think that he gives too much credence to the idea that uh, you, you know that like the Steve Bannon types, uh, the um, you know the Tucker Carlson types, are uh, meaningfully uh, economically populist. You know that that that's sort of, that's the disagreement we were talking about earlier. Oh, that they're so, not actual populists. Well, that would be my position, right? That they have a that they're that they're not like that like none of their actual you know that like what Bannon like if Bannon had gotten everything he wanted in the Trump administration, that right. would have been like you know raising the top marginal tax rate to like close to what it was in the Clinton you know the Clinton years mm -hmm. and like a little bit of an on infrastructure, but in terms of you know healthcare or wages or unions or you know anything like that, yeah. you know. I don't think those guys, you know, are uh, are meaningful, you know, populists. Right. And and I don't want to speak for him too much in absentia, you know. But I, th I think some of, you know, I think some of his stated evaluations of these things, I think that he gives way too much credence to the idea that there's been some sort of big partisan realignment on those issues. And I don't really think that's true. Yeah. Well, Anna and Dasha really exposed Bannon for not for not being a true populist in the way that you're talking about or a social. Yeah. Democrat. Yeah. 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 Right. No, exactly. That's uh, yeah, I think I think so, uh, which is which is one of the reasons that I'm uh, like, I'm happy that they uh, that they had him on their uh, on their show, because uh, that's a like what they were, you know, usually, um, you know, so, I, you know, we talked about this a few minutes ago, but like just real quick, you know, I'd, I'd say like I think the contrast is astonishing that like the uh, the, the monk debate. That Bannon did with David Froome, yeah. they just sort of like lobbed rhetoric at each other, but there were no actual policy disagreements. And why would there be? They're both Republicans. Uh, and whereas in that Red Scare interview, where they keep kept saying, "Hey, mm -hmm. uh, if you're populist, why don't you support Medicare for all?" Right. You know, from, from my perspective, that's a much more useful intervention. And also, by the way, much more useful than if they'd done what they'd done what people like on like the online left would have wanted, and just like never talked to them in the first place. I think that's a very good point. I agree with you. I, I thought I thought Bannon's performance uh, against Frum was absolutely magnificent, though, and it just blew me away. But you're right. You're totally right. I, I have, I've been waiting for years to hear Steve Bannon answer Dasha and Anna's questions about Medicare for all, et cetera. And I finally found out. You're right. He's not. He's not a social democrat. He's not 
I agree. He's not a, he's not really a, he's not really an economic populist the way that a lot of Europeans are. Yeah. He's a, uh, yeah. Like, like, so, so like rhetorically, you know, he did well against, yeah. against Froome. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think, I think that's right. Like I, I think all of the sort of appeals to, you know, salt of the earth deplorables and, you know, stuff like that, mm -hmm. like I, mm -hmm. I think it has some rhetorical oof to it. Um, right. I, I just think that there wasn't a lot of substance um, being discussed there. Agreed. So, um, so yeah, we do. Uh, I, I'm sure we'll make our way back to uh, politics by the uh, by the end of the discussion. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, but I, man, every, everything is political. So <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that. But uh, Drew, you yeah. know, yeah, I I mean I don't. I think a lot of things are political. I think that uh, I I think that some things are. Um, I actually think that some things aren't. You know, that's that like. There's well, there's your segue, right? Because I believe, at least in my reading, that that's an argument that Foucault makes, that politics are everywhere, that everything is political, right? Because power flows everywhere. It's ubiquitous in his thinking, right? But anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't, you, that's no, your, no, no, that's, that's, your, that's no, your that's, segue to make. <laughs> no, that, that's interesting, though. I, I, want to, yeah. uh, I want to get into this. Uh, first, though, this is this is goofy, but uh, we, we found... Uh, this is a uh, in a video. Uh, uh, I think this was from a video that Nick Gillespie did for uh, for reason, uh, but it, it it made me laugh, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to watch it with you before we uh, got into this discussion. Oh, this, yeah, sure. So all they believe in is identity. There's no individual, man. That's gone with postmodernism. Postmodernism is actually pre-modernism resurrected. Postmodernists are not really interested in truth. The level of irrationality that grows out of this undermines uh, the opportunities for uh, doing something really significant and important. This leftist postmodern Marxist stuff, that this is the new religion. Show me a postmodernist at 30,000 feet in a, in a jet and I'll show you a hypocrite. If you're a postmodernist, just to have a discussion with someone like you, cisgendered male of power, you know, and, and white to boot, it's like that's that's an evil act in and of itself. There you go. That's been the bane of my existence for about three years, right there. I've debated three of those guys, um, and and I know most of them um, personally. But yeah, um, yeah, it's just it's just rank ignorance. And which, uh, just just out of curiosity, which three? Oh, have I? Um, so I debated um, um, Hicks in New York. At the Soho Forum. He <laughs> is it, have you ever read that book or looked at it? Oh, oh my good God. I, I it's truly the worst piece of scholarship I've ever read. And I, I really mean that. It's not it's not because I was his opponent. Um he really didn't read stuff. Um and then oh Molyneux. I I I debated the the odious Stefan Molyneux. Um, yeah, we, we actually have that in common. Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, it was just about postmodernism, so it was only an hour of that. I, so I didn't get to get, dig into his lovely theories about race and sex and all that. Um, yeah, he's. I was just telling someone, actually, a friend of mine who has another podcast interviewed Molyneux today, <laughs> and I and I was telling him over the weekend, listen, <laughs> you've got to. Uh, I just want to know if he always held those views. Yeah. About what was this main thing about, like the poles being so beautiful and they oh yeah yeah <laughs> something about yeah. Just yeah, yeah. He, he says like uh, in the clip he says something like I just got back from Poland and you know yeah. I've criticized white nationalism but in Poland 
everything was great, you know, and, and there was, it was, it was just white people and everything was wonderful. And, you know, yeah. you know, criticized white nationalists, but I am an empiricist. So, you know, it's, I, mean, it's, uh, I yeah. think, I think if you sat him down, he would say he is a racist. I mean, it seems definitionally. I mean, I if I call you a racist, you're a racist because I t I use that word very carefully. I mean, he is, he's a just definitionally. I don't know how, what else you could say. And about and about gender, he's even maybe worse. I don't know, but you know, going on about how this famous woman should really be having children and that famous woman should really be a wife and like, oh, okay. I mean that's fine. You can live in the nineteenth. No, no, it's, I mean, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. I mean, I when, when I debated him, it was about um, economic mean, stuff that they have, but 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 in the course of it, um, you know, we uh, you know his immigration views came up, and uh, and he right. uh, he, did, he did this weird reversal there, right? Because he's he's supposed to be a hardcore right. libertarian, he's an anarcho-capitalist, but then uh, but then. Part of his reason for this massive statist intervention to round up, you know, uh, immigrants, mm -hmm. is that it would be better for uh, for the uh, you know wage levels of you know low income you know people in the United States, and 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 even he sort of did this whole thing where he's like, oh, it would be better, you know, uh, you know, why don't you have compassion for you know for, for no. black people, Ben, because the black people have their wages undermined by immigrants, and so I, mm -hmm. you know, so hang, hang on, though, Ben, hang on. Uh, that was Bernie Sanders' argument until about. I mean, I, th I think that there is, yeah. So I mean, bracket. Like, I think that yeah. I think that Bernie Sanders' position on this, um, like, I have problems with it. I don't. Think it's quite the Molyneux position, but he. Uh, I think he. Uh, but uh, but anyway, so so I since it was a timed formal thing, I had the last word, and so I I, I used it to say that if he if it's really really his position. Oh, and brain drain from the third world. That was another one of his arguments. So I said, if, if it was really his position that we could violate libertarian you know, economic principles every time it would be good for black people in the United States or for people yeah. in the third world, that he and I might disagree on less than I thought. But uh, but I think, um, look, I mean, Bernie uh, is certainly not a um, you know completely uh, open borders guy. There's the famous comment where he says that's a, that's a Coach Brothers ideas yeah. idea, you know, having, having open open borders. Yeah, but like. The reason I find that a little bit misleading is uh, that you know when the way that people talk about that sometimes is that nobody with any position of uh, of power in American politics is a completely open borders person. I mean the uh, the sort of the people who pass for libertarians in mainstream American politics, the Paul family, uh, mm -hmm. certainly are not that. In fact, they're actually much worse on immigration than somebody like Bernie is. Uh, the you know uh, Bernie isn't uh, even. Even people who might talk about, you know, abolishing ICE, you know, like like if you really drill down, you know, they, they're not, you know, they're not all the way there. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I, I think that he, uh, I, I think that being a very earnest guy, I think that Bernie was was expressing his reason for, you know, for rejecting that in a way that uh, takes this this premise, right, which is certainly, you're right, the same like underlying thing behind people with like really grotesque positions on immigration like Stephen Molyneux. Yep. But I think as far as the American political spectrum on immigration, I think that, uh, you know, like, like he's, he's on a pretty good, um, you know, he's on a pretty good end of it. Right. You know, he's, he's not, uh, you know, like, like he, I, I don't think, I don't actually, I think in terms of substance rather than details, I'm not convinced there's actually that much, you know, reversal there that sort of like, okay, 
he's a reformist on immigration. He wants a path to citizenship, you know, all that stuff. I don't know that he was ever really diametrically opposed to any of that. Mm. Well, I was just going to say, he's also, I mean, Molyneux and probably more Molyneux, actually, because he racializes it certainly more than Sanders ever did. Uh, it's Cesar Chavez's argument. No, it's definitely Cesar Chavez's I mean, argument. Your, Chavez audience, your audience knows about this, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I mean, I remember I, I, I've certainly seen stuff in um, uh, left media and current affairs that, that brings it up. But yeah, Cesar Chavez was like, uh, like I mean, it's, it's shocking when you read about this. You know, he, he, was, he was like... Worse than Trump. Worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. rhetorically and in terms of policy, worse than Trump. He had armed squads from the UFW patrol the border. He called them wetbacks in public. Yeah. Can, everybody should do it just right now. There's an amazing video of him. It's an interview in the early 70s on KQED right here, our local um, PBS affiliate, in which he talks about wetbacks and how illegals are flooding in and we've got to get rid of them. And I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's like he's the Mexican Trump. But he's revered. At, he's revered on the left. Yeah, Still. well, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that people. I, I think a lot of people. What they know about Cesar Chavez is, is that uh, is that he was a uh, is that he, he was a Hispanic, you know, labor uh, labor leader, and he did a lot of good organizing. All of which is true. But he also had uh, this uh, this extraordinarily right wing, you know, position on immigration, you know, which is. Uh, you know, I, I think that sometimes people overstate the point historically, you know, they'll say like, oh, this is like a traditional left position or something like, you know, it, it, I think that uh, I think socialists traditionally have not had that position. You know, right. I, you know, the IWW, the, the most part. you know, there was but, Vic, Victor Berger and that crew in the early 20th century were definitely racist and anti-immigration. But you're right. Generally speaking, socialists have been pretty good on this. I mean, I'm an open borders person, so that's what I mean. But, but, there, but there is but there, there right. is like. There, there is a strand in like the uh, I think strand. a more uh, a more you know conservative part of the uh, the labor movement going back to Samuel Gompers and you know uh, said that immigrants uh, yeah. crash on labor's doorstep uh, yeah. and, and and I think and I think Chavez on that issue was was definitely representative of that tradition. Well, it's that's most of labor. I mean, people. You know, I started out as a labor historian, right? We talked about this last time, I think. Um, most union members in this country have been in non-socialist, non-communist, you might even say non-progressive unions, and the vast majority of those were totally against immigration. So George Meany and the AFL-CIO were backing up Cesar Chavez's campaign to close the border in the late 1960s. Um, also missed in this is that it was Ted Kennedy and the liberal democratic faction in the Congress who pushed that bill, the, the immigration bill, 65, which established the border patrol. They liberal Democrats and Cesar Chavez and the AFL-CIO established the fucking border patrol. Well, I don't understand. I don't understand why any of these people are not in the dustbin of every Marxist's, you know. Well, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 I think, with the possible exception of Cesar Chavez, I think I don't think there's any Marxist who has warm feelings about either George Meany uh, or, or or Ted Kennedy. That's although, what I mean. Sure. Uh, you know, although uh, I, I would say. Um, well, you know, I, I, I think that when Kennedy uh, challenged Carter, I think that the uh, I think it was a dismal enough time for the left that at that time, you know, some people who were actually, you know, pretty far to the left were willing to support him. But I'd, I'd be very surprised if any, um, you know, if any contemporary 
you know, uh, leftist has has particularly positive feelings about Ted Kennedy. I think if they do about Cesar Chavez, it's a gid because they don't know very much about him. You know, like he's, he sort of has this has this hazy you know existence as as a uh, as like uh, again Hispanic uh, important uh, important you know labor leader you know winning victories like those are the data points people have. So you, you you sort of see how they they get there, but I I agree. I think there's a uh, I, I I think that uh, I I think like I think a more I think the more people I think the more a lot of people on the left knew about the uh, about Chavez, the less they would like him. Yeah, last one last thing about Chavez. <laughs> we yeah. were not planning on talking about him, but so my yeah. lecture, my my senior thesis in college was about the fight between the UFW and the Teamsters in California in the 1970s over jurisdiction, essentially, you know, they were just competing unions, right. For the farm workers. Um, and I did analysis of the contracts that each union got. And it turned out that the Teamsters contracts were a bit better actually on average and usually than the, than the UFW's contracts. So the Chavez, um, hagiography mm. is just that, and it needs to go. It needs to go. We need to look very much more clearly at that guy. He was um, as bad as it gets. He really was a Trumpian in so many ways. Um, but anyway, let's let's get on to more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is any of that objectively? No. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> it's I, objectively I, true, everything I just said, yes. Okay, all right. Outstanding. We're done. All right. No, uh, I, I am. Uh, so I, I'm very curious about this because uh, I know that you have done a lot about this, um, you know, the subject. Uh, and it's something that I know you know, um, you know, you know a lot more about than I do. You know, you've, you're, uh, you've been, you've taught classes about it. Uh, the uh, at, Renegade University, uh, and certainly, um, you know, I, I know a little bit of this literature, but like my, my you know, my background in, in philosophy, well, look, I have, my background in philosophy is, is in, you know, analytic philosophy, and uh, and so I think that probably I, I, I do have, like, biases in from a couple of different sources uh, that would, uh, that would, you know, maybe... Um, Stop me from from fully appreciating any insights you get from postmodernism. One of those sources, one of those is the set of analytic philosophy biases, and the other one is the uh, is the set of Marxist biases. So, uh, no, but, you, should, you should you should be opposed to it. You should be. Yeah, 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 should, yeah. 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 So okay, well, you know, <laughs> but I don't have to, but I don't have to feel bad about it. But uh, before I can properly oppose it, uh, I do. I do need to uh, know more about it than than uh, than I do, and this is this is something you've been very interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, we just watched this clip of uh, of people in uh, of people ranging from Stefan Molyneux to Noam Chomsky saying very bad things about you know about postmodernism. Mm -hmm. So, I, I guess I, I realize you know apologize in advance. I know this is an extremely broad question, but like. <laughs> What do those guys in that montage think that postmodernism is, and what is it? Okay, yeah. So the the I don't know if this is deliberate on their part, but what they're doing is they're transposing the Frankfurt School with postmodernism. They're transposing critical theory, especially its early variants, with Foucault and Derrida and company. Uh, I I believe that the current American woke identity politics absolutely derives from the Frankfurt School. 
I, I think that's the basis, the philosophical basis of this stuff that we're seeing now. Uh, it has nothing to do with what Foucault or Derrida said. In fact, it's a complete, in my view, and the view of many people, it's a total repudiation of what Foucault said and Derrida said. Yeah, like 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 Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre actually uh, actually was a, a Marxist, and uh, and he and Foucault uh, hated each other. Yeah. Yeah, they should have. That's not, yeah, and and, Ch and Chomsky is right to hate them too. You know, Chomsky and Foucault had a very famous debate. To yeah. make, I believe it was in the late '60s, and you can actually watch it. And I mean, those guys, <laughs> Chomsky. Yeah, yeah, we actually, we actually did watch it. <laughs> yeah, we actually did watch it for the Sunday night debate live stream series. Uh, fun fact about that debate: uh, apparently, um, uh, Foucault insisted on uh, being paid in hash. So like then like for a while later like whatever they smoked it and say oh, let's 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 break out the Chomsky hash. That's my boy. I love it. Yes, one of many reasons I love him. Yeah. Oh, so um, so they they call almost always they 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 blame postmodernism for what's going on in college campuses. Basically, the politics that have emanated from college campuses over the last decade or so that have now found their ways into the mouths of AOC and you know the the mainstream media and now even corporations, et cetera. They call that postmodernism, but it's we can talk about why it's just completely wrong. What it, the root is totally is Marcusa and Adorno and and those guys um, who I, I just think are flat out totalitarians and there's just no getting around it. I mean, to read Marcuse's repressive tolerance essay and not, and to embrace the guy, I mean, I, it's staggering, but people still do it. Doug Henwood, I saw him just uh, defending Marcuse on Twitter the other day. And I know Doug has been on my show. I, I, it's just, everyone should be forced to read that essay and let's have a discussion about it because it's truly, it's, um, it's it's arguing that people with the incorrect politics, right wing politics, which he doesn't even define really, should be censored. Should be yeah. censored. I mean, it's yeah. like okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Marcuse basically has like the um, the John Stuart Mill utilitarian idea about free speech, but they he just comes to different conclusions about. Um, you know, like like look, I mean, John Stuart Mill and uh, in On Liberty says that you that uh, you can't have. Uh, that like they like India isn't ready for liberty yet, you know, because the conditions don't exist, you know, mm -hmm. for it to work out in the right utilitarian way. So they have to be administered by Britain for now. And right. I think I think that in that repressive tolerance essay, now there's a postscript where he takes a lot of it back. But they have a in the in the essay, he seems to be suggesting that uh, that the uh, that the you know that the United States uh, is is just uh, not fulfilling the the conditions for uh, for free speech to, to lead to good consequences. It's certainly not an argument that I would want to have anything to do with, but um, right. I'm, I'm curious. Okay, so uh, <laughs> certainly this this equation that like your, your Jordan Peterson's, for example, had, right, of, um, of Marxism equals postmodernism equals identity politics mm -hmm. is, uh, is wrong in both halves, right? You know, uh, that, and, and we can, you know, there maybe is a separate discussion to be had about how much the Frankfurt School, you know, then leads to uh, to, to identity politics, at least that strand of uh, of Marxism. But what I'm really curious is, like, what they what the postmodernists actually thought, right? So, like, like, like starting with the first of those figures that, that you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, Foucault. Like, mm -hmm. all right, so, you know, yeah. what uh, what Molyneux and Peterson and all those people think he thought is not what he thought, but what did he think? 
Yeah, especially Molyneux, the goddamn idiot. I mean, he's supposed to be a libertarian, and Foucault is... I mean, to me, he's what libertarians should be. And by the way, this is kind of what I've been doing for several, year, several years now, politically. One of my missions has been to get libertarians to look at this stuff and embrace it and see that they can be even more libertarian than they are now. Because to me, it's it's the libertarian philosophy, actually, truly. And li libertarians are almost all hostile to it because they're all positivists. They all come out of STEM fields. They're all engineers. And one plus one equals two, goddammit. And we know there's truth out there because my dad was a scientist. It's that, honestly, it's that level of sort of reactive, reactionary thinking to this stuff. Um, so I, you know, I've been coming to them and saying, yo, and by the way, Nick Gillespie is one of the very few libertarians who's on my side, although even Nick doesn't even go far enough. I mean, he's, I'm a radical on this stuff, which we can get into, but yeah. So, um, Foucault, it starts, so it's, a, you know what, you know what Foucault is? He's a historian. He's a historian. And that's really what postmodernism in a way is. It's being a historian. It, so his first book is on the history of the asylum, the mental asylum in Europe, right? One of the greatest horrors ever committed in human history, in my view. Maybe the worst horror, even worse than some wars, I think. And he just sort of asks questions. He begins with questions. So how did these people end up in those places, right? How did these, how did these poor inmates end up in mental asylums all across Europe and then here too? And so he looks at what they were charged with, right? The word that was used, right? Whatever. And the words change all the time, of course, because psychiatry is constantly changing its mind about everything you may have noticed, right? So whatever the word of the time was used to put these people away, he traced the origin of that word. So he would just look at the history of that discourse, right? When did people start talking about like in this country, it was neurasthenia among women, right? Got a lot of them locked up. There was this, this malady that afflicted only women and made them especially nervous and da da da. So they had to be put away. Uh, well, okay, so where does that come from? Is it in the Bible? No. Uh, is, it, is it in some science lab? Did some guy like look under a microscope at like human cells and see neurasthenia in women's cells? No. He looks back in time at the discourse. So he just does a history of the discourse and finds, oh no, as a matter of fact, in every case, there was a moment in history where this idea, this concept was invented. And then he shows how it gets reinvented, reinscribed over time, and then used by the state. And this is the other thing I love about Foucault. He's, he's mostly concerned about the state abuses. The state then uses that as a pretext to lock people up. But most importantly, what Foucault shows is that what they were really doing was locking away uh, dissident voices. So a lot of people who, you and I, I know I would have been a candidate for an asylum. I mean, the state would love to put away all of us who are dissidents on the left or the right or from wherever we're coming from, right? They would love that. Well, what, what better pretext than to call you crazy and to, to say you're a danger to society and yourself? So that's Foucault's first book. That's Madness and Civilization, early 1960s, right? And then he does, and then he goes under the prison and he writes a book about the prison, the history of the prison. Same thing. Well, how did this come about and how did it change? And he makes a really brilliant, I think, argument, which has to do with his broader sort of big overarching argument in all of his books about how power has changed from the pre-modern to the modern era. So for him, the pre-modern era, which he calls the regime of blood, right? So pre-modern kings and slave masters, right? How did they control people? Well, they 
chained them, they whipped them, they cut off their heads, they threatened them, they tortured them. All external coercive physical violence and the threat of it, right? So the problem was to many kings and many slave owners, and that's what I've done a lot of work on, by the way, is slave resistance and how slave owners were just like, yeah, we can't control these people entirely because they're human beings and we need their labor. So the slaves had a lot more power than people get, which is Eugene Genovese's argument. Uh, so um, it was ineffective. It was ineffective. What happened to a lot of kings who used those means? They lost their heads literally, right? There were revolutions all over Europe. Uh, it was a very dangerous, dicey game to be cutting off the heads of peasants, you know, when especially when you don't have an NSA, when you don't have an Air Force, when you don't have this, the FBI, you know, when these states were minuscule, very weak states that couldn't do a whole lot of policing. So Foucault has argued, but he, he shows that a lot of sort of the elite over, you know, during this period and sort of the, the early early modern period, were saying, hey, and the founding fathers, this is the work I've done, the founding fathers said this shit explicitly. So they said, you know what we got to do to discipline people? And you're going to love this, Ben. This is in my book, Renegade History of the United States, first chapter. It's the first argument I make. Uh, founding fathers, to a man, said, the great thing about democracy is once you convince people that democracy is good, meaning that it, they should rule, that they should govern, they will voluntarily, if they really believe it, voluntarily discipline themselves, and we won't even need cops. Because if you have to govern, this goes back to our last conversation, if you have to govern, <laughs> John Adams said, he did, uh, you just simply can't be a drunkard anymore. You can't be thinking about sex all the time. You can't spend your extra time on leisure, frivolous activities. If you're going to be running Philadelphia now or the United States in 17, whatever, 18, whatever, you've got to discipline yourself if we're oh, going to be. Sure. So hang on. Wait. So so the uh, it was actually in the minds of the founding fathers, democracy was a disciplinary apparatus. It disciplined the working class. Yeah, I mean, what? Although I, I would point out, like, I could, I could understand why in a very Puritan culture they would make that argument. Although, I think uh, I'm not sure how uh, persuasive I find that. It's, it's, it seems like there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like there are a lot of undisciplined ruling classes in history uh, that, you know, that that are, you know. Are, are drinking and you know and, and, and doing yeah. you know doing all those things that you know, happened, you know. what happened to them you know their heads were rolling down the streets in Paris <laughs> because, you know, because of that I mean is, is that why yes. yes indeed I mean hello that was like the one of the major beefs against Louis and company right was that they were spending all the people's money on crowns and diamonds and thrones and and mink coats and all the rest of it right so yes that was a major problem that people had with the monarchy well. I, th I think the hoarding of, of of wealth. I think that might be a little bit different from the like. I, I don't know how. Uh, I don't know how concerned uh, people were. You know about the uh, you know the the drinking too much. Uh, well, it, well, okay. So I mean, my point remains though that a democratic society requires discipline among the people. Yeah. This, and, by the way, so hold on. So this is this is this is this is an argument that's been made by John Locke. John Locke has made that argument. 
Jean-Jacques Rousseau has made that argument, even though they obviously fundamentally disagreed on major stuff. And a guy named Vladimir Lenin also said this, the working class, the proletariat, the people must be disciplined if they're going to run, govern society. So, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I would just make two quick points about that. Uh, and, and I don't want to get you know too hung up on this because I want to listen to the rest of what you have to say, but I, I, I just say, that one, uh, I think, uh, you know, I think in the latter day cases, you know, with like with Lenin, there is disagreement on this. You know, Lenin existed, but so did Emma Goldman. I'd also say uh, with the uh, with regard to uh, the founding fathers, that uh, that one odd thing about this is that they, um, you know, is that they didn't actually want to give non property holders the uh, the right to vote. You know, they were they were also uh, extraordinarily concerned. Uh, to uh, to exclude you know people from uh, and and even to uh, and even to find ways to you know to insulate people ex- exercising political power from the whims of those those who were allowed to vote you know so I mean I mean I don't know I don't know like like if if you're gonna make a case that you know yeah. that there's that uh, that democratic empowerment you know of of the masses goes hand in hand with with this sort of disciplining of them. I mean, that to me makes it a little bit of an odd example. Um, I missed your point. Let me just say this, um, and that's probably my fault, but Thomas Jefferson and others, but especially Jefferson, um, was really concerned not so much that that the voters be propertied, but that they be landed, that they be farmers. They wanted farmers. Why farmers? Because farming requires nonstop labor. (laughs) Farming, and when you're not working the farm, you're thinking about the farm. So those are always, by necessity, the very best citizens. If you're a king or a president or a mayor or a gut, you want everyone in your district to be a farmer, don't you? I mean, those people don't make any trouble. to have time to, uh, to second guess anything that you're doing. Right. Yeah. They're just too busy, you know, pulling food out of the ground. Right. That's an extraordinary amount of work. Ask anybody who's ever worked near a farm. They'll know this. Right. And Jefferson and company were well aware of that. So that's actually one of the main reasons they wanted property people to get the franchise. But so democracy is anti-fun. It's anti-sex. It's puritanical. It's puritanical by, by necessity, by necessity. Well, I mean, that it's it seems to me that there there are plenty of uh, of contemporary liberal democracies uh, where there is uh, there is there is lots of fun and sex to be had, and uh, certainly rather more uh, than than in, than in some places that are uh, are not you know that are not particularly you know uh, you know de- democratic, right? If if I were you know like like you know I I, th- I would think if we're comparing the amount of fun and sex to be had in Sweden and Saudi Arabia, you know I know which one wins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, so Sweden, I mean, sure. Well, the United States, I mean, there's, we're the, we're the world capital of fun, right? Our entertainment industry has been the dominant entertainment industry in world history, right? Yet at the same time, and this is, this is my point, every single president, every single senator, and all the school teachers, and the generals, and the scientists, and the CEOs have said what? exactly about sex nothing <laughs> nothing it's what freud called the great bourgeois silence they just didn't talk about it, which is repressive right it's repression of sex to not ever talk about it and if it ever comes up like i have a rapper i mean this is sort of cooled down a little bit but until very recently 
if a rapper or a rock star made a made a song with sex in it, they mm -hmm. got lambasted by the political elite. There were actually hearings held in Congress, not just once, but many times on rock and roll and hip hop because of what they were doing to, to destroy the civilization. So, and if you read like Barack Obama, okay, read everyone, please, please go read his first inaugural address. It'll take you five minutes. It's short, right? It is a paean, a tribute to all the work that Americans have done. It's all about, it's, he's just extols the, the Puritan work ethic like no one I've ever seen. William Bennett, the odious William Bennett from the Reagan administration, Mr. Mr. Cultural Conservative himself, loved Obama's speech for precisely that reason, and he said that. Democracy requires discipline, it requires work. You, you simply can't party and manage society at the same time. It doesn't work too well. Well, anyway. I think you set your mind to it. Uh, you you can, but that that's a that's a big, <laughs> uh, a big disagreement between okay. us. Uh, yeah. So so when it comes to Foucault, uh, you, you're talking about the the dispersed like so this this concept of power. This this is maybe something that I've, I've felt like I've never completely uh, understood of Foucault, and I wonder if this also gets down to one reason why uh, you might well actually. In a weird way, both one reason why you know um, Foucault uh, had had these conflicts with with actual Marxists, uh, mm -hmm. you know, who uh, who existed at the same time, but also maybe in a weird way, uh, a reason why some libertarians, you know, might be reluctant to uh, to follow you onto this train because, you know, Foucault sort of talks a lot about power being everywhere that you know that there being relationships of power, you know, all over the place, mm -hmm. and it's a little bit unclear sometimes at least to me what he means by that or how uh normatively loaded that is right like 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 how much we're supposed to think that like the exercise of power is bad and how much this mm -hmm. is just a, a neutral you know mm -hmm. observation about reality because mm -hmm. to you know to the extent that it's coded as being normatively bad mm -hmm. i could see some libertarians uh thinking okay well wait a second uh you know if you know, if we really want to emphasize like state coercion and de-emphasize relationships of power elsewhere, this is clearly not our guy. Right. And I could, see, and then conversely, I could see Marxists saying, "Well, look, I mean, if everything's power, then like you know, then then you've you've really like lost sight of the idea that there are certain sorts of basic economic structures, you know, about uh, exerting power that are what we should be focusing on." So I, I don't, you know, I mean, any part of that you want to jump in on? Yeah, that's a that's a really important misunderstanding. And that's one thing you'll hear Jordan Peterson and company talk about all the time. So they'll assume that because Foucault and company identified something as a social construct, they are denigrating it. They are saying that it's evil, that it's a conspiracy, that it's used to as a means to, to hurt the working class or whatever. It is. No, no. Um, I know there are listeners who have read Foucault, so they can back me up on this. He doesn't make claims like that. He does not make claims like that. He's, I, I can't ever think of him really even taking a position one way or the other normatively on these things. So no, he's just simply pointing out that these things have origins, not in nature and not in God, not from God. They have their origins in human consciousness which means that they they're contingent and they also get changed over time like ideas about race like ideas about gender right every goddamn day we have a whole new system about of race and gender in the world right constantly changing so that if you get labeled as something right as a man 
as Jewish, as white, as cis, as whatever, right? You now have a tool to combat that if you would like to. I know a lot of people on the left don't want to combat that, but I don't really appreciate uh, being reduced in my identity to those categories that were social constructs and that never did anybody any good. But, you know, make it make it easier. If you're a black trans woman, right, and you get called unnatural, right, which they do, right, you can say um, exactly uh, where did, uh, where does nature say anything about what clothes I should wear, whether I should wear makeup, whether I should have feelings that I am a woman and not a man, whether I should identify with this gender category or that gender category. No, it doesn't say that anywhere. It is in nature, right? So it is totally mutable. It can be changed. So that's why Foucault is the origin of queer theory, which queer and queer, because that's the major intervention of queer theory, right? Was against all these claims that being homosexual, uh, being uh, queer was a perversion, right? Or like Freud, for Freud, Freud had a whole medical analysis of homosexuals. They had not, they had not gone past the normal developmental stage in adolescence. They remained permanent children, right? And, you know, made up. I mean, did Freud look through a microscope to figure this out? Did he run any studies? You know, no. Uh, he just, he saw a few patients. And from that, he said, you know what I think? Hmm. Uh, although I do think Freud was right about some stuff. But um, so this is why I love history. The reason I love postmodernism is the reason I love history. It's like, come at me with some bullshit that's attempting to constrain me, confine me, limit my freedom. And I will, I will walk you right back to the moment when your great, great granddaddy, figurative, figurative yeah. speaking, you know, made this shit up. And for these purposes, which were not nice purposes, like with race, it was invented, obviously we all know, to justify slavery. We know this from Barbara Fields' work, from David Brian Davis's work, that it was justified post hoc, right? All men are created equal, Thomas Jefferson. Well, what the hell are you doing with slaves then? Well, he says, you know, 15 years later in notes on the state of Virginia, oh, when I said all men, here's the deal. It didn't include those black people. And here's the list, a list of all black characteristics that makes them inferior to white people. So yeah, I'm like, if you're gonna play that game with us, if you're gonna try to like put us in a box, a racial box or a gender box or a sexual box, and you wanna keep us there, and, you, and your basis for this, your justification for it, is that it's somehow godly, right, or natural, the Foucault and company just gave us this wonderful means to do that, to, to challenge that. Yeah, so I'm, um, actually, I'm curious about a couple of things. I do want to get back to, to the power part, but I, yeah. uh, but, uh, I think one way that that somebody could could push back, you know, gets against some of this, while agreeing that look, lots of things are social constructs. Clearly, you know, that there's no, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yes, you know, race uh, is is bullshit that was made up to you know to justify you know slavery and colonialism. You know, no doubt whatsoever about that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but even in your uh, explanations of this the sort of like uh historical you know unpacking of of how a lot of these concepts came up in the first place uh and 
uh, and you're sort of praising, you know, Foucault for, you know, for doing this historical excavation, you know, you've, you've used these sort of phrases like, oh, well, it's not like you can look through, you know, a microscope and see this, you know, they, they just made it up, you know, fair enough. Right. But like, uh, I, I guess I'm just wondering in terms of any more radical sort of postmodernist uh, philosophical claims, like, you know, it sounds like what you're faulting them for is not doing like, you know, good rigorous science to discover what is, or at least this is the way I think, you know, maybe you'd, you'd want to quibble with this way of putting it, right? But, you know, to discover what's actually objectively true, that, you know, they were doing bad science. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious about how that relates to those sort of more radical claims that postmodernists might want to make about truth or knowledge or anything like that. Um, right. I mean, that's the standard sort of liberal positivist uh, response to this, which is, oh, the racism of the past, that was, as you just said, bad science, right? Well, think about the unbelievable arrogance to think that now and only now is the time when human beings got all this stuff right, right? If you look at the way dominant ideas, paradigms across the world until about 10 years ago, right? If, if, we, if, if the woke among us were to look back, do we, how much of science do we agree with? How much of social science from before the 1980s, 70s, 60s do we agree with? How much of it do we consider outright fucking barbaric, right? Virtually all of it, right? So, um, that we finally got it right and now we're right? Oh, we make we love to make fun of flat earthers, okay? Because once upon a time, people were so stupid and wrong that they thought the earth was flat. And oh, and also that the uh, that the sun revolved around the earth. Oh my God, they're so stupid. They were so stupid back then and we are so right now. We know exactly what's going on. Back then, everybody, everybody, except for Copernicus and Galileo eventually, were totally convinced that the sun revolved around the earth, right? And then they became totally convinced that it didn't. <laughs> well, you know, that tells me that we might be wrong about everything right now, everything. Not just, not just about morality, that's the easy one, but about the physical world. You know, about what's really going on right now. I don't know, but just be skeptical is what the postmodernist said. Be skeptical because Thomas Kuhn in his great book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is many people sort of identify as the origin of that wing of postmodern thinking, which attacks the, the sciences, the hard sciences. He says, just be skeptical because he shows these paradigmatic shifts, not shifts, but revolutions, right? Again and again and again, the structure of scientific revolutions. Science revolutionizes itself constantly about stuff that was just taken for granted because it seems so obvious because when you wake up in the morning, hello, the sun's every day, it starts there and ends up over there. Does that not look like the sun goes around the earth? Of course it does. You, it, The sun goes around the earth and we're going to burn you at the stake if you suggest otherwise, right? So be skeptical. And that's what postmodernism at its core for me is. It's just radical skepticism. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think that part of what I think you just said sounds like, um, so it's sometimes called the, uh, the pessimistic uh, meta-induction in, uh, in the philosophy of science, you know, which, which just says uh, this, 
what science uses inductive reasoning. You look at what's happened in, you know, in the past, you try to extrapolate forward. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, you know, I mean, I, anyway, I'm imagining people being mad at me for brutally oversimplifying, but you know, that's rough, good enough for now. Right. Yeah. And then like, um, uh, but you know, previous scientific theories having been proved wrong has also happened a bunch of times in the past. So, you know, so, so we should think that, uh, that there's a good chance, you know, that maybe even like, I think, I think the more, the stronger version of the claim would be, we should think that it's more likely than not, you know, that, uh, that current, you know, that current scientific theories, you know, will be, will be proven false. Uh, and, and, you know, and adding, you know, I, I get the argument. I think that, um, like, I wonder, you know, how far you take it, right? You know, like, like, like the example. All the way. I take it all the way. All, all the way. So, yeah. like, yeah. so, 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 like, we there's a very good chance we'll we'll find, you know, we'll uh, the we'll find out that the um, uh, the sun really does revolve around the Earth after all that we got it right the first time. If we were that wrong as an entire society for centuries. Why can't we be that wrong again? Okay. W look, how wrong were we about race? All of us, you know, on the non-racist side of the world now. How wrong were we? And that was five minutes ago, historically. Scientific racism was still peaking in the 20th century. In the 1920s and 1930s, it was at its peak. The 1924 Immigration Act, right? which barred uh, Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans, right? Was totally racist from top to bottom based on this like Madison Grant's book. And I, it's, I can go into this, but you know, this, this crackpot, we would consider him a total crackpot quote, social scientist wrote this book in which he says, oh yeah, there's three races of people in Europe and the ones at the bottom we need to keep out and the one, the Nordics at the top we could bring in, da, da, da. All of Congress basically agreed with this. It was taught at Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Stanford this was, you know, books and books and books and books and articles were written with this thesis at the heart of it in the 20th century. Okay. And now we think, we think that is not only like just horrifically wrong, but also horrific, but yeah. certainly horrifically wrong. So why can't we be wrong about if we were that wrong that recently? Yeah. Why can't we be wrong about such a central thing in society, right? We we organized societies around these ideas about race. We organized whole this, especially this country, was organized largely around ideas about race, which we all now see as voodoo, except for the woke left. The woke left will not let go of those categories, by the way, those social constructions made by slave masters to enslave black people. That's what the woke left is doing. They will not let go of those racial categories, even though they were invented to enslave people. So, so you you said uh, we now see that that's voodoo, and it seems like when you were describing earlier, you know, like like what it is that you know the sort of scene that it's bullshit. It's like I, I think maybe we could make a distinction between saying that there is you know. You said, okay, it's not like somebody looked through a microscope, right? You know, that like, okay, there are times where you could actually, in that example, uh, you know, look through a microscope. You can, you know, you can use rigorous scientific methods, you know, try to like figure out all the data that you have, but you just get it wrong because, you know, because you're, you're missing something, because there's this new evidence that comes up later that complicates the picture, you mm -hmm. know, and, and that's, uh, 
and and that certainly happens. But in, in cases like uh, race science, it's uh, it like that's not what happened, right? I mean, like this is what you're saying that you know what you're saying on your behalf and what you're saying on Foucault's behalf uh, that you go back and you know you look at the you know great great granddaddy who made it all up, you know that like he didn't you know use rigorous scientific methods, but you know but just misfire. You know, he made it all up. So, I mean, it, it, it seems uh, like those things should be put no, in, I would I mean, think. You know, you know about, you've seen the pictures of the calipers measuring people's skulls and noses, right? You know about this, frenetics. I mean, uh, all that stuff. So, I mean. Well, yeah, but I'm sure you've read. It was, on, you know, you know the, uh, that, uh, that they have, there was a lot of, um, you know, working backwards for the conclusions that they wanted to come to, you know, that the uh, that none of the phrenology, you know, the phrenologists, you know, we're not, uh, you know, like, you know, we're not looking at, um, you know, at a bunch of, uh, of data and following it where, you know, where, where it led. And, uh, you know, they, they were, you know, doing things like, okay, we've got a bunch of skulls and we can, you know, we can fill them up with the, uh, the was it bullets, you know, and count the bullets to see how big the skulls are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this one and this one and this one don't fit what we think we want. So let's, let's, you know, let's, let's look at some other ones instead. Now, uh, what I would push is you could say, okay, like human beings are generally prone to motivated reasoning that, you know, that maybe this phrenology example that I'm describing is an extreme case, right? But we're all susceptible to cognitive biases and, you know, none of us are, you know, are, are, are ever doing a perfect job of, uh, of rigorously extrapolating from the data without worrying about what we hope it leads to. But does that mean that we can't say some of us are doing a much better job than others and that we can look at different at different things that happen at different times and say that some of it is a lot more rigorous and some of it has at least a much greater degree of bullshit to it? Sure. According to the paradigm we're operating under now and all of its rules, right, the, the rules, what science now means, right, and the rules of it, sure, we can look back at the past and say those guys are doing it wrong. You know, they're not we're not doing it as well as we're doing it. But that's according to our own standards. And who invented that? God? No, us. <laughs> so it's kind of a rigged game there, you know? Oh. Again, you know, again, like, it's really, when I first read Thomas Kuhn, it blew me away. I was like, I just assumed that science was this steady march toward truth, right? That they just kept getting closer and closer and closer to truth, which is why society just keeps getting better and better and better too, right? It, it also, it aligns with this uh, Whiggish theory of history, right? Where things just keep getting better over time, which, uh, you know, ask the 20th century. The 20th century has some mixed feelings about that, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it has mixed feelings about that, you know, although I also do note that a lot of your 20th century examples are examples uh, about the, uh, the social sciences and examples about morality, rather than examples about, you know, astrophysics, you know, not that we didn't get anything wrong there either, but, uh, but mm. certainly not, you know. As, well, eugenics is a, is a real big basis for a lot of what happened in the 20th century. I mean, that was, that was all scientists at Caltech. <laughs> that was Caltech. That was MIT. I mean, that was, these were, these were the, not just scientists, these were the top scientists in the country were pushing not just a little bit, but hard on eugenics, which was another reason for the 1924 immigration uh, restriction bill, and the only reason that they locked up and sterilized 50,000 women. Most of them, by the way, were white. 
Yeah, although I think that's also interesting because I think genetics is an area where in the uh, early 20th century, the amount of, uh, of actual data to, uh, to go on was, uh, you know, was, was pretty pathetic. I mean, like, you know, like I think this, this is sort of, you know, in your, you know, like stock way of putting it that, you know, that uh, oh, are people looking through a microscope or something, right? You know, it's not like, it's not like anybody in the 1920s was, you know, mapping out the human genome and coming to, uh, and coming to conclusions about that. You're looking at very scanty evidence, and uh, and then sort of filling it in, you know, with these, uh, you know, racist narratives, often sort of vague cultural attitudes, and you know, what I was pushing is how uh, how much is um, you know how much is it the case, you know, like without claiming that anybody is an epistemic Superman who's 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 not biased in any way or you know anything ridiculous like that, right? Like, how much can we still say? There's uh, there's variation, you know, that there's that there that uh, that there are people who are being more rigorous than others, and if your response to that is okay, well, according to our standards, but where did our standards come from? God, uh, well, I, I mean, is the only are those the only options, right? Like, are the only options that uh, that our epistemic standards come from God, or that um, or that it's there are there's nothing that makes something a actually objectively good epistemic standard because because on the face of it you think what we really want from an objective standard and i realize the trap i'm walking into here because i think i know what you think about this but let's 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 see right i'm totally open to being refuted here but they have a uh, but uh but i think that the obvious thing to think about how you evaluate, you know, standards of evidence is: are they good at getting us to the truth? Yeah, yeah, no. So listen. Um, so another thing that people assume about us weirdo postmodernists is that we are nihilists who believe that nothing is real. So that's that Michael Shermer clip in that in that you know Michael. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, yeah, no, I don't get on an airplane and worry about whether it's actually going to lift off the ground because it's a social construct. Okay, so I operate according to what I'm sensing and perceiving and how I'm processing that information and and the constructs that I'm creating in my own mind. Right. All I'm saying is that we want to be skeptical about all of it. That's it. It's the most anodyne. Uh, you know, prescription anyone can make is, is it just be skeptical. You can be, a, you could be a socialist and a postmodernist. No problem. You just can't make big moral claims about other people you've never met before and what they need and want in the world. That would be contrary to what Foucault and Derrida were saying, I think, but you can certainly say, I would prefer to, I think I said this to you, I would prefer to live in a socialist society because it would be better for me. It would make me happier. I would like it for the ver whatever reasons you have. That's totally legit. Just don't make any absolute moral claims or scientific claims about it, about it being objectively the best form of government, mm -hmm. the best form of yeah. economics. That's all. That's all. Yeah. I, I mean, I get the, I get, I think I, I understand the moral half a little bit better because say, okay, well, when you, you know, you're talking about morality, you know, you take the, uh, the big, you know, like the sort of basic human point, right? You know, where we can't read those off of the uh, of the the facts, right? You know, like what we value. You know, those are two different things. Uh, not, I mean, I think that we do all, or you know, maybe not all, but almost all of us 
uh, you know, value things not just for how we think that they're going to impact us, right? But how we think, you know, they're going to impact uh, other people, right? You know, like like that. I think that's true about your politics too. Um, sure. Yeah. That's well. That's often the problem for me in politics is being sure. being concerned about other people. <laughs> you, well, I mean, but you. It's uh, mm, a dangerous thing. I, I, I mean, like that. You're uh, that. Uh, like, I, I mean, I believe, right. And I, I mean, this is, this is praise, right. You know, like I, I believe that you are, uh, concerned about wedding parties being droned in Pakistan and Afghanistan, even though you were very like rationally not right. concerned about that personally happened, happening to you or anyone, you know? Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one I get. Right. So yes, I am a, I'm an anti-imperialist. I'm anti-war. Uh, I want to, uh, eliminate about 80 to 90% of the US military for starters. I want to bring back every single soldier from abroad home immediately, you know, all that stuff. Now, why, right? If I'm if I'm also don't believe there's anything absolute moral standards out there, right? Because it turns out that when you drop bombs on people in other places, they tend to not like you very much. And they might even be willing to get in their own airplanes, well, no, someone else's airplane, actually, and fly it into a building that I might be in, <laughs> right? Um, and even on a lesser, to a lesser degree, like, I would love to travel around the Middle East. It's a fascinating place. I mean, I would love to go there. But because of U.S. foreign policy, right, we are, Americans are largely hated by many people in the Middle East. There are lots of the Middle East that's basically a no-go for Americans if you want to have a comfortable, nice time. And I'm blaming U.S. foreign policy for that, right? Because if I lived in those countries and I had family lineage going back a century or so, I'd be pretty pissed off at Americans too. So, um, no, it's self-interest, man. It's self-interest, so, actually. So if the, uh, if the drone war and all that stuff uh, works, Right. If, if, if we if the it actually had the stated like like if it actually achieved its stated goal of uh, of reducing rather than increasing the amount of, uh, of terrorism uh, and and you, you weren't worried about blowback and anti-American sentiment, mm -hmm. uh, you would have no problem with that. Um, I mean, if it's actually taking out criminals who are dangerous to me, sure. sure. Okay, but, but, how, but how about if it takes out like if it's taking out innocent people? And, uh, but uh, it's not going to adversely affect you in any way, you know, that they have a, like, like, like let's, oh. like, maybe in the real world, these things oh. can't be disentangled, that, you know, that there's just too, it, you know, it's, it's too implausible that it, it wouldn't have blowback. And, you know, I'd probably agree with that, right? But, like, uh, but if, uh, but if the same crimes were being committed in some way that just, that that uh, that we magically, you know, we're insulated. You know, we're insulated from, uh, you know, from blowback from it. You know, that the uh, that uh, in some way or another, you know, there was a, uh, you know, there was a, uh, you know, there was a force field around the uh, the country that you know mm -hmm. there were many parties in, and uh, and they had, and it wasn't a country that you were ever particularly interested in visiting anyway. You didn't think it'd be that interesting, right? Uh, you know, but it was it was not just dangerous criminals i mean that that it was like it it was like the current drone program i think that you would still have a problem with that so obama didn't just bomb yemenis in yemen with his drones he also killed with bombs out of drones two american citizens one of whom was a teenager right 
So it looks to me we already are not very far. <laughs> the, the Gulf is being bridged between U.S. foreign policy and U.S. domestic policy, especially now that they're labeling people like me as domestic terrorists, people who are skeptical about the election. My God, like just to be skeptical about the election makes you a domestic terrorist now. You know, so this is why, yes, this is why I oppose governments bombing people in general, unless it's absolutely necessary and it's my government protecting me, which almost is never the case. But I don't want governments having the ability or the right to do that, to drop bombs on me, on us, on people. So if I let it happen in Yemen, well, it could very easily happen here. So I'm just, I'm anti-government, not because, not for a moral reason. I just think it's, I just think government is a terrible institution and the greatest, it is objectively <laughs> the greatest mass murderer in, in world history. And that's what Howard Zinn said. Great, great socialist. Howard Zinn said that about government. And he was, of course, he's obviously, he's obviously right. I mean, there's no question that government has killed more than anybody. Yeah. Any, I mean, anything. Yeah. I think, I think Zinn would have some follow-up comments on, on, about on whose behalf you know, that, uh, you know, that killing was done and how that relates to economic systems. Uh, but, uh, but I do, um, I do want to step, uh, you know, there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of interesting strands here. Uh, I, I am, I'm going to, I think heroically resist following up on the, uh, the skepticism about the election uh, uh, part, because I, I, I don't want to get too off track here. Uh, okay. But, uh, but I am, uh, I mean, you know, we can talk about it sometime, but I, I suspect that that would be a, well, actually, all right, damn it. I'm going to succumb to temptation. Uh, how, uh, how, how skeptical, uh, like, 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 do you, do you think, is it your, is it actually your position that there's a significant possibility uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Trump actually won the election? Knowing the Democratic Party of the last five years, I think it's weird to assume they wouldn't cheat because they, were convinced, and certainly the rank and file was truly convinced, that Trump was Hitler. Now, if I thought Hitler was in the in the White House and there was an election coming up, you best believe I'm going to be helping to cheat in that election to get him out. I believe that liberals and Democrats and even a lot of people on the left were morally obligated by their own discourse about Trump to cheat in the election. Why wouldn't you? If you believe the guy is Hitler? I'm going to cheer. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you cheat. But, so that's, that's, but that's a motive, right? Like there's, there's a difference yeah. between saying that somebody would have a motive to do so. Like, I mean, I would say the same thing to someone who is like convinced that Bush did 9-11. So, you know, he could, uh, you know, he could start the, uh, the, war on, the war on terror. That just because there's a motive, that itself doesn't give us a reason to think that the actual thing happened. That was just my opening statement, though, Ben. So that's, okay. so, but the motive is overwhelming. Right. So that means to me, the motive is so powerful that it it requires us, I think, to at least examine this. And no one has examined it. People say, oh, the courts rejected it. The courts refuse to look at the evidence. We also know that in the United States, the United States has ranked 26 out of 20, 26 out of 26 of the major industrialized countries in the integrity of their election processes. Like we know that this country has the most easily corruptible election process. So we've got huge amount of motive. We have a huge amount of opportunity. And then there's just the data. There's the data on election night. And I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't looking for this. I didn't assume it was going to happen. I should have. I, mean, I thought about the motive, but 
the, the numbers just don't make any sense. And we also have tens of thousands of people who voted when they didn't, when they weren't residents of a state, who were dead, who were not citizens of the country, on and on. And also you have Biden beating Obama in a lot of districts. Are you kidding me? First of all, we know that Trump got more black votes than before, right? And Joe Biden's popularity among African-Americans in Milwaukee, Detroit, Atlanta, and Philadelphia, which is where the steal happened, most likely. Are you kidding me? Well, so, yeah, it was an insanely high turnout election on both sides. I think that the beating Obama thing, uh, I don't see implausibility there. I think that uh, the... You know the ten. You know the idea that there were uh, that there were tens of thousands of uh, of of dead people. You know, or or non citizens. Uh, you know, we certainly don't have like you know most of the affidavits. You know that were that were that were turned in are uh, you know pretty you know pretty thin rule. You know, as, as far as what people were claiming. I don't know where this evidence is for these 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 tens. You know, these, these tens of thousands uh, of, uh, of of people. And and this this idea that you can sort of work backwards from okay the numbers you know um, you know the numbers aren't you know aren't what I'd expect uh, you know therefore or the numbers you know the numbers don't make sense given previous you know voter rolls uh, to uh, to to cheating I mean I remember when this was something that uh, you know that was like a popular liberal conspiracy about the 2004 you know election you know in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think the uh, I think the track record of of these claims, you know, being borne out as as, as time goes on, is um, you know is is not you know is is not very high. I mean, like is how how much you know like you're saying that the courts. I mean, you're right. Like a lot of lawsuits were rejected just because the court said that you know that people didn't have standing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were just rejecting legal arguments, you know, rather than uh, you know rather than look at data. Uh, you know, that's that's true. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, but that being, you know, I think that's a very different claim from there actually being some, you know, big pile of impressive data. Uh, if there's never been a day in court, I think we have to assume, and they haven't been allowed. And the fact that you can't even post a video on YouTube anymore that questions the election results. You can't put even on Twitter. I tweeted something about it was very mild, and they put a little warning to the to the readers. The election has been verified. Doesn't that tell you if the ruling class is like making sure we get the correct information about this thing that they're hiding something that they're nervous about? Well, because well, I mean, because because we could use the parallel argument to say that uh, people being arrested for Holocaust denial in Germany means that the German ruling class was trying to you know trying to hide something. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that's a you know like like like. I, I don't I, I don't I wouldn't put you know I wouldn't put very much stock in that argument I think that I think the tech censorship is very bad I'm with you on that uh, yeah. but I th I think that moving from uh, you know conspiracy theories being censored uh, to the conspiracy theory is is true or there's there's some serious evidential reason you know to to think it's true um, you know at least uh at least according to my standards so uh, you know of evidence but as we saw earlier those standards were given to me by god so uh so i, I don't really know how you can dispute them you've met you i mean so you have many many districts and counties in which the turnout was like 90 to 95 percent which we know if you know anything about american voting history that's just doesn't happen not even close you also have districts where more people voted than lived there Look it up. 
it's 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 at least fishy. I'm not sure, right? I don't have. I'm not saying I am a hundred. Yeah, I think there's an extraordinarily high turnout election. I mean, just the raw numbers of people in the country as a whole voted is way higher than would normally be the case. It's a very unusual election happened under very unusual circumstances. It sure did because they passed all these laws in these states that made the election totally different. You know, with these absentee ballots and all these drop boxes. This is un, unheard of, unprecedented. Also, these things are very easy to corrupt, right? Mail-in ballots and drop boxes on the street in Atlanta that you can just stuff a ballot into. I mean, come on. Do, I mean, all I'm saying is let's give it a day in court. Let's give them a day in court. Let's give the Trumpers a day in court. I want to see. I'm just saying I think they presented enough, and I, I've seen the evidence myself, enough, enough for it to actually be examined, and no one's examining it, and that's what infuriates me. If they, I just want it to be thoroughly vetted. Let's do it. Why are, why is the establishment and unfortunately the entire left wing dismissing this? Why, why can't we do that? Is there not enough, especially if you think about the motive? And if you, I know you're, I think you're good on Russiagate, right? I mean, anybody who's like on the left who saw what the Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah, I, I actually see a lot of similarity between the two cases, you know, the, uh, the two, uh, the two stolen election narratives. Uh, well, okay. But also what they did to Bernie Sanders. Right. I mean, these people are incredibly ruthless. The Democratic Party, have they not proven themselves over the last five years to be incredibly ruthless? My problem with this is that if we're going from some set of political actors are incredibly ruthless to any particular conspiracy theory that anybody has about anything that they do is true, or at least that we should give like a decent amount of credence to, to, to be true, I think you have to believe in an awful lot of conspiracy theories. I'm not even sure it was a coordinated conspiracy. I, I would, I could easily see it have been being uh, at the local level. I mean, if you look at where it happened, you know, you have democratic machine, democratic machines have been running those cities for my entire lifetime. We're talking about Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Atlanta. Okay, those are total lockdown democratic machines. Again, I just, I mean, if you don't at least like have some skepticism about those people and what they would do, you know, because they could control the election totally within their precincts. I, uh, I just look at it, please. I just want someone to do a full examination and not just um, not just dismiss it as crazy conspiracy theories. Also, by the way, the Democrats, we all agree, did steal the 1960 election, right? We know this, Histo like totally normie historians all agree that that, that was, that was stolen for Kennedy. The mayor daily in Chicago pulled some tricks and in West Virginia pulled some tricks and got, and got uh, Jack elected. So there was a judge in Philadelphia just last year who was convicted, convicted of stuffing hundreds and hundreds, literally by hand, hundreds and hundreds of paper ballots into a box to fix an election. We know that in Philadelphia, they have a long honored history of cheating in elections. And that's where, that's one of the epicenters of this stuff. So it's happened, there's precedent. And my gosh, the motivation and the opportunity off the charts. If these people could do Russiagate, and I think you have basically the same opinion of Russiagate that I do, right? I mean, that is the worst hoax ever committed possibly in American political history. Certainly one of them, and incredibly dangerous too, incredibly dangerous. They were willing to risk war with a superpower to get Trump out of office. I mean, 
these people are willing, willing clearly to do anything. They're just demonstrate. And by the way, who are they? Who's the Democratic Party now? It's a bunch of fucking prosecutors. You want to talk about cold-blooded killers, right? Kamala Harris and Joe Biden may as well be a prosecutor because that's all he's ever done as a senator is lock people up and go to war with them. But, you know, Amy Klobuchar, it's that's the prosecutors are the hot, sexy new Democrats, right? Those people, we know this. What are prosecutors? Prosecutors are sadists. They're put on this earth to hurt people. That's why they take the job. Why else would you be a prosecutor? You're going to be you're going to spend all day long locking up, especially you're going to be spend all day long locking up poor people. That's what you do as a prosecutor. Well, Certainly not going to defend the uh, the honor of, uh, of of prosecutors, but uh, but I think that there are uh, an awful lot of those uh, prosecutors are worse in uh, in the Republican Party. So if we're going to work backwards from there to uh, to cheating, uh, then uh, then I think that there's you know we have grounds to uh, to suspect uh, you know to suspect cheating uh, cheating all around. Uh, so I, I don't really I don't really get that argument. I do think that. Uh, I do think that the you know that uh, that RussiaGate uh, you know was uh, you know was bullshit, which uh, which adds to my skepticism about stolen election narratives. Uh, but uh, but I do um, if uh, if it's all right to you, in, in just a minute, uh, I want to bring uh, Forrest back on and uh, read some uh, some questions uh, from uh, you know from the chat uh, that are you know that are about earlier points in uh, in the discussion. Uh, and uh, before uh, before we do that, uh, I wanted to. Uh, this is there's there's no the uh, uh, the natural transition from uh, the uh, from um, from whether we should we should take seriously you know Trumpist uh, you know claims about the election being stolen to uh, to to Foucault uh, you know I I I, would, I certainly can't do that on the fly. I'm not going to pretend that I can, uh, but. Uh, but I, I, I did want to uh, I did want to before we before we brought on Forrest and asked the super chat questions uh, I, I did want to get one uh, one thing like to try to like tie up one little thread that I, I wasn't totally clear on from earlier uh, which was uh, which was this this business about power because because you you, you, know, you told me a lot about social mm -hmm. construction uh, but uh, but what is like what does Foucault actually mean? You know, he talks about power, you know, being so widely dispersed, you know, like, 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 what does he, what does he mean by power? And, and what's the, what's the normative implication of that? Like, like, like how much, you know, like, like if, if we think there's like, there's a lot of power being exercised over people in various parts of society, how much is that of that is, uh, is, is intrinsically bad and how much of this is just a neutral observation about how things are. Yeah, again, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't make normative claims. He just doesn't do that. Um, maybe here and there in some interview, you might see some of that. But he's very good about that. He's very disciplined. But I just don't think that's his his what he's after. Um, he's not interested in that. It's my point. And in fact, he's he's Nietzschean. I mean, his 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 granddaddy philosophically is Nietzsche. You know, um, and Nietzsche's whole point was to get rid of morality, right? And stop looking for, you know, moral reasons, you know, to make judgments, et cetera. Um, so Foucault says a couple things, and this is of course, just the way that I read him, you know, but I think I have a fairly orthodox reading, um, but that power circulates constantly in every direction from every person to every other person. So right now, you and I are looking at you. So this, and but you mentioned the Panopticon in the segment before me, right? 
So like you right now, you and I are looking at each other. I'm not even talking about the audience yet, but you're, we're looking at each other and we're evaluating each other in various ways, right? And we're also evaluating ourselves. We're, we're thinking, we're constantly thinking, am I doing this the right way? Am I saying the right thing? Do I look good? Do I, am I doing, right? Um, and so that becomes a sort of self-policing act and it also becomes a policing act. I'm sort of policing you, you're policing me in these subtle ways, right? But that's, that's really, I think what he's talking about. Um, and he just says that power in a, in a famous passage in History of Sexuality, volume two, <laughs> that power comes from the bottom up, comes from the top down, it moves si uh, laterally in every which direction. So, for instance, like, you know, the, not for instance, but one way this could happen is, well, we know that ideas circulate, right? And they, their origins are multiple that have, that have changed the world. Marxism is a great example, right? It's mm -hmm. a damn idea by this fucking professor, you know, sitting in the British Museum, writing his damn book with a big beard. Who the hell would care? Well, it turns out the entire 20th century cared, right? Was shaped largely around what Marx had to say, right? Um, and a lot of that came, yes, much of it was elite intellectuals, no doubt, and I have a huge criticism of that, but some of it came from the bottom. You know, there were some working class people in significant numbers who bought into the idea of class revolution, et cetera, right? And socialism. And so, and then it, those ideas circulate outward, you know, into the world, the rest of the world. It wasn't just in Germany and Russia where people were socialists from the bottom up, et cetera, right? Uh, yeah, so in other words, it's not just this sort of very old school left wing, and I think most lefties are much more sophisticated than this now, but this old school left wing, and I would say woke identity politics version of power, which is that it's just top down, it's just oppression, it's just people who look like you and me, but are richer, oppressing everybody else. Uh, and that's it. And there's no agency. That's the other thing I love about Foucault is he grants agency to everybody, including slaves, as I was talking about earlier, including, you know, Russian serfs, you know, everybody, people at the very, very bottom of society historically, they had agency and they made history, they made their own cultures, they had power in that relationship because the owner, their owner, needed them. They were the most valuable piece of property, right, on the farm. So that meant they couldn't kill them when they felt angry at them. That meant they couldn't whip them every single day because if you whip a person, just like if you whipped a horse every single day, they're not going to work well for you. And they understood that, right? This is, again, Foucault's major insight here. So yeah, power is everywhere and it's discursive. It's discursive. So I again, it's like he's, Hege he's Hegelian also, I think. Ideas are what make history and ideas are carried in everyone's head. And also once you get the people, and this was his point about modern power, once you get the people feeling ashamed about being bad citizens, you don't need cops. You don't need prisons, right? And that's the American middle class I just described. You got this whole swath of the American population that loves the military, respects the cops, believes in what the government says, you know, you should wear a mask, even though the science doesn't say, and so everyone wears a mask, right? Uh, and there you go. You don't need, you don't need to, you don't need uh, external coercion. This is a new regime. It's a regime of management. And it's a regime really of, of internalized shame, internalized shame among the people. Once you do that, again, you don't even need a government because they'll police themselves. Well, 
All right. Um, so I, I think that the uh, I, I I I believe uh, that you know that I I don't I don't have uh, I don't have polling data, but you know, but I, I believe that the uh, that uh, that most epidemiologists uh, do think uh, you know do think that masks uh, reduce the uh, the rate of uh, of spread of uh, of transmission of uh, of COVID. Uh, right. That's uh, well, okay. Uh, they have uh, I I. I as I said, I'm, I'm fairly I'm fairly sure that that's true. Uh, I, I also wish that you'd be a little bit more, uh, you know, skeptical of the uh, of the election uh, the election stealing, uh, you know, narrative. I think that there are I think that there are good uh, skeptical questions to ask there too about, for example, why uh, while they were, um, you know, while they were you know they were manufacturing all of these millions of votes to uh, to have this unprecedented high turnout. Uh, you know, for uh, for for Biden, why they didn't uh, also uh, steal themselves a few more Senate seats, so the next uh, you know the next four years uh, would be uh, you know would be easier. But uh, I can tell you why, because most of the people who would have submitted fraudulent ballots probably didn't care or know anything about the Senate race. I think that's a lot of what happened. I think a lot of people were told, "Hey, here's this ballot, and you can get that bad boy, that bad orange man out of office if you just do this." They don't know who this. Most Americans have no clue. Who their senator is not a clue. Well, that I, would, I would think if you were getting people to to gather, you know, ballots for dead people and whatnot, you know, you give them that information. Uh, but um, but uh, I did find the uh, uh, the Foucault stuff uh, extremely interesting. And and if you're okay with switching gears now, I think uh, Forrest has some uh, super chat questions for the audience about that. Sure. Yeah. So um, hold on. So the the first one is um, have you have you read One Dimensional Man? How beautiful did you find it? And uh, <laughs> why do you think it's the story of the modern man? Wait, feel free to answer the first uh, the first part. Of you did was the word beautiful? Yes, I, yeah. yes. It got very contentious after uh, after have you read it? But the uh, but I, I think the I think that uh, I think that translating the gist of the question is what do you think about One Dimensional Man? Oh, I, it's the opposite of my politics. I think it is totalitarian. Um, I want nothing to do with anybody uh, whose lineage can be traced back to that thinking. Uh, it's grotesque. I don't know. What else can I say? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I hate it. It's certainly not beautiful to me. All right. All right. Fair enough. Uh, um, somebody, someone said, uh, Ananji said, thank you. We can all learn from about... Uh, how the state exercises power. Um, somebody asked uh, if you can expand on the term discipline in the way that you've used it in this conversation. Mm. Mm. That's a good question. Let's see. I mean, I, I was talking about Foucault's use of it. I mean, it's one of his big words. In fact, it's the t in the title of one of his books, right? Discipline Punish. Yeah. Always like to think that somewhere out there, there's a um, there's like a hard drinking graduate school dropout it gets into a lot of uh, bar fights and he has discipline to, you know one of his calls one of his fists discipline and the other punishment but yeah you're saying the, uh, I like that use the term I'm going to use that in my MMA career um, well okay so I don't know if this is directly answering because I don't you know I'm not exactly sure what Foucault meant by it right um, I'm sort of speaking for him and this is just my reading but I mean I guess I think an interesting thing to talk about, which we haven't touched on, is that History of Sexuality, Volume 2, is his response to Freud and Freud's uh, idea of repression, right? 
that civilization and I and this is where well this gets very interesting to me because it's to me I'm actually sort of right in between the two I'm actually I like kind of both of them on this and but I tend to be actually more Freudian okay that is interesting and well my book renegade history is a Freudian analysis of American history um, so you know Freud Freud says civilization requires repression of the id right our impulse is to fucking fight in order to build itself you can't it's kind of what I was saying earlier right it is what I was saying earlier to build a civilization, you've got to repress these urges to do things that are fun, right? And chaotic, you, it just, right? I, I just think that seems like a very solid argument. Um, and you see civilizations of all kinds, by the way, socialist, capitalist, democratic, monarchical, they all do this. I mean, they're, all, they're always repressing, attempting to repress the id. Yeah, varied extents at various times, but I I, I, I can see that you can't have, uh, you know, if you have nonstop orgies, you know, the food isn't going to get grown, and eventually everything will fall apart. You want you if you're a leader, if you're a, if you are governing, you want the people to be thinking about governing. You want to, and or the state or the whatever it is. Um, so Foucault takes this on. He's not he's he's a critic of that idea, and he says there were attempts to repress for sure right? Many times. But it ended up not working. Because when they, for instance, when they invented homosexuality in 1868, in order, basically, to lock up homosexuals and to punish them in various ways, what happened right after that? It was the, it was the emergence of the first gay subcultures in all the cities in, in Europe. And I do, I, this is a friendly intervention, but I, I do because I, I could see somebody misunderstanding what you just what you just said, right? It's, it's certainly not that uh, same-sex desire was invented then, but like the conceptual category of homosexuality. Correct. The, the, and the social category, yeah. And so as Foucault sort of says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, you know, like people who were labeled as homosexuals, they they grabbed the term, they grabbed the concept and said, yes, that's what we are. And And by the way, being homosexual means this, this, and this, and they start to determine what it means to be homosexual and gay, and therefore you have these, what I think were beautiful gay subcultures that emerged completely from the streets among the working class, by the way, in New York and in Paris and in Berlin in the early late 19th and early 20th centuries. So the attempt to repress, he says, is an introduction of new discourse. So when homosexuality as a concept was invented in 1868 by a German social scientist, he just gave to people who had same-sex interests a category to belong to. And many of them gladly did so. Others ran from it, but many gladly ran to it. And then by the 20, by the mid-20th century, they're grabbing onto it hard. And, they're, and then by the 1970s, they're running in the streets naked saying, God damn right, we're faggots. And we're gonna and we're gonna beat the fuck out of your police if you do anything about it, right? I mean, that is, and that's just that's a, one century that happens, right? But when you introduce repressive discourse, he said, you're just adding more stuff, and you're often adding desire and pleasure and things that are enticing, and you know, people, oh, what's a homosexual? Wow, what's that? Oh, turns out I'm one. Ah, right. Oh, and it turns out Bob down the street's one too. And oh, I've heard that there's a city called San Francisco and I'm going to move there as soon as I can. And here we are and we're all homosexuals. Oh, shit. So um, that's, I think, when he's talking about discipline, he's talking about attempts to discipline. Now, in, in P Discipline and Punish, he talks about 
the, the creation of the modern penitentiary, which was much more about constant surveillance, the panopticon. In the, in the modern, the, the Benthamite prisons that Foucault talks about, everybody can see everybody else simultaneously and the guard tower is right in the middle so he can see everybody simultaneously as well. They're always watching each other and they're always policing each other. And he says, solitude, solitary confinement essentially was intended to make people sit there with their conscience. Right. Sit there with their conscience. And then every once in a while, a priest or a counselor or a psychiatrist would come to their cell and explain to them exactly why they should feel guilty about what they did and who they are. And then they just leave them alone in their cell for days on end. Anyone had that experience before? You know, <laughs> being alone, being caught with your ideas, and when you might be bad, a bad person, right? Is the it's the invention of conscience and guilt and shame. A little too Protestant for me. As exactly. To to, <laughs> to reference. Yeah, the yeah. Catholics, the Catholics are like they're they're the regime of blood, right? They just fuck you up, they beat you up, they you know they do. It's just all this sort of external coercion, right? Heavy-handed shame is not nuanced, not subtle, right? But the Protestants are all about, hey, man, listen. Listen, I don't, I'm not going to read the book for you. I want you to read the Bible yourself. This is the Protestant Reformation, right? You read the Bible yourself. Now, now, now what happens, right? You have this, like, just explosion of true believer Christianities and Christians across the world. It was a br brilliant move by the Reformationists. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you ever, uh, by the way, this this is a little, um, do you, so Alec uh, Ryrie, I have no idea if I'm saying his, his, his last name correctly, it's R-Y-R-E-I, uh, has this series of, of lectures uh, that are on YouTube about um, like the, uh, like what uh, medieval like church court records can tell us about early atheists and things like that. That's that's uh, uh, I just finished or almost finished watching them, and and it, it is kind of fascinating on this subject of like the um, you know the Reformation and and telling um, and the sort of effect of uh, of telling people to um, you know to to read the Bible for themselves and you know and and the the way that that's you know the idea is that this this will get them you know sort of take off all the extraneous catholic stuff and they'll get this better more pure version of faith but it yeah. actually turned a lot of people into skeptics about religion you know because uh you know for all sorts of interesting reasons you could probably imagine uh but anyway that's that's neither here nor there but, you know, no, but it, also, it also made a lot of people much more pious than so right. Luther and Calvin's big beef with the Catholic, well, it's many beefs, but one of their big beefs with the Catholic Church is very Foucauldian, is that they weren't getting the job done of disciplining the people, right? So Europe, you know, at the time of the Reformation, there's great, you know, paintings done of this, and there's plenty of, we know this from scholarship, there was like fornication and prostitution and drunkenness all over the damn streets of all the cities, right? And so they, and they said that's because the Catholic Church has all these people named priests and cardinals and bishops and popes between the people and God's word. So you got to get God closer to the people, which of course worked in a lot of ways and made, that's why Protestant churches suck. I mean, meaning they're so not fun, right? Because the discipline is so deeply entrenched because they actually read the book and they get even more invested in it. If the priest just says, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you know, as Foucault says, that has limited effectiveness. Well, yeah, which which is which is very actually, you know, with the pluses and minuses reversed, 
the uh, Adolf Reed line that Forrest was quoting earlier. I mean, this was this was kind of his point. You know, he uh, he said, uh, I think he said elsewhere in that interview that he, uh, or you know, a few minutes before that maybe, he's always said you've got to uh, raise your kids uh, either uh, Jewish or Catholic because otherwise there's a danger that they'll turn out religious. Yep. So it's 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 a, you know it's it's the Luther common point but with the values reversed. Totally. Uh, totally. Forrest. I, Okay. Yes, we got one. Yeah, there's last. there's one one last one, and then I have a question, just really fast. Um, sure. Sure. So this question is: Does Thaddeus' skepticism extend to the scientific consensus slash mathematics? I think we've covered this some of this earlier, but you want to you know yeah. go over this? Yeah, this a lot. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's yes, I'm skeptical that math is completely true. <laughs> you know, that's all. I mean, I use it every single day. I don't, I don't live as if it's untrue, which is what a lot of people like Jordan Peterson assume about us postmodernists. But I'm just saying, you know, again, if we were that wrong about the damn sun and the earth, you know, do, and again, where did math come from? I mean, it, I don't, I can't, I don't see it in the Bible anywhere. I don't see it on a blade of grass or in some cloud. It doesn't come from nature. We invent, it's a language. It's a language. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, like my dad was a math, a mathematician. Uh, so well, that is actually, uh, Oddly enough, uh, that that is something we sort of have in common. My mother is a retired math professor. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. He was. He got a. He got a master's. He wasn't. He was ended up being a computer programmer. But yeah, I mean, he's oh, from. Actually, now this is even more eerie because uh, my my dad has a master's degree in math, and uh, and he ended up becoming a computer programmer. Uh, my uh, you know my mom. Uh, well, actually, she didn't have a PhD in math. But she got a. EDD, and she ended up being a math education professor. Both red diaper babies from the yeah. non, from the non-Stalinist left. That doesn't happen very often, Ben. Yeah, no, yeah. This, this, this is remarkable. So yeah, I mean, I, I think on the, I mean, on the math point, actually, this is like without going too deep down the the rabbit hole. I mean, like there is a there is something interesting here because I think a lot of people from the sort of um, you know, analytic philosophy-ish background that I'm from, people who you might think of as being like, you know, kind of like positivist about science and you wouldn't like that, but like have yeah. oddly enough in a weird way on some of the same page on some of the math issues because, uh, because you know, this is something that came up um, like, uh, you know, look, James Lindsay, who I know you know, uh, said uh, had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had this thing on Twitter that was like, you know, I don't know, at least if you follow the right people, there were like weeks of, you know, discourse about this, about uh, about how absurd it was that anybody would deny the objective truth of, you know, two plus two equals four. And, and, and of course, uh, the, I you know, one like position that I think within the sort of philosophical background I'm describing is like respectable, that sounds, you know, as, as, as reasonable and likely to be true as anything is that, okay, two plus two equals four is true, but that's because it's, uh, but that's truth is relative to a set of arithmetic axioms. You know, you have different axioms and something else is true. Yeah. Well, it's, it's true to the rules of mathematics. It's true according to those rules, of course. Yes. So two plus two equals four, According to mathematics, modern mathematics, of course, right? You you could actually have like an an internally consistent like weird set of axioms that like this, which you know the same way uh, like Immanuel Kant thought that Euclidean geometry was was a uh, like built into the necessary framework for any kind of possible perception of space and and right. and, uh, and but then of course since then people came up with all of these internally consistent axioms for uh, non-Euclidean geometry, some of which turned out to be incredibly scientifically useful. So, uh, so I think they're, it's, uh, 
sorry, yeah, sorry. But um, yeah, so Boardwalk and Monopoly is six hundred dollars, according to according to the rules of Monopoly. Does that mean it is absolutely true? <laughs> no, but you know, I love math is just fine, and it turns out to be useful as far as I can tell. Again, I just I'm skeptical about it. I don't know if it actually maps onto reality the way that positivists think. Uh, physical reality, then. Sorry. Do you, when you said maps onto reality, you mean like physical reality, or what? Yeah. What do you mean? Anything. Yeah. Anything. Okay. I, I'm just skeptical. Like as we should all. And by the way, I you know. I've interviewed many scientists on my show, and I my dad was a math, ma mathematician, so I know I've known these people. They all of them pretty much say, you know, what a sci scientists are postmodernists. They're supposed to be skeptical of everything. Their job is to actually try to take down every truth claim that's ever made. That's all they do. They just go hammer and tong at each other. Anytime there's a truth, they're arguing about gravity. Like there's a massive debate among physicists about gravity now, like you know, about because they found some stuff in outer space that was moving not according to the rules of gravity that they, you know, so that's a beautiful thing. They're actually, they tend to be much closer to me on this than humanities people and social science people. Um, it's, it's science, being a scientist is being a constant radical skeptic. That's who Copernicus was. He was a radical skeptic. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's radical skepticism, like uh, you don't think, you know, like some like this sort of ancient Greek, like academic skepticism. You don't think that we know anything, or you know, maybe there's some, you know, we only know that we don't know anything. And then like there's skepticism in the sense of uh, thinking that things have to have to like pass a high bar of uh, of of evidence, or we should like be constantly looking at whether something is really our best explanation. Uh, of uh, of the evidence evidence that we have, um, but you know, look, I don't um, actually. Sorry, let's let's just go to well, uh, let's just go to Forrest's question before we. Oh uh, well, all right. So I don't want to relitigate this whole um, part of this conversation, but I was a little bit curious oh God, about what. So oh God, maybe the election. Yeah, I just I, oh. my my question is all right. So Trump appointed throughout his presidency like 245 judges that got confirmed to federal courts right mm -hmm. like unquestionably that was mitch mcconnell's goal that was trump's goal sure trump appointed um like three supreme court justices so that he would have a majority on the supreme court and a big part of that i mean obviously deciding cases but like deciding you know um if there was another situation where trump um like if there was another situation where Trump lost the popular vote, but won the electoral college, it would be stacked in his favor, favor, obviously, like, like it was for Bush. Um, so I guess my question is the Supreme court just rejected the last of Trump's 60, um, appeals to look mm -hmm. into different, um, mm -hmm. you know, different, uh, you know, things that they thought there was, that they had some kind of evidence on, um, election fraud. So mm -hmm. if, if they rejected, you know, all of their appeals, like where would you assume that the the you know the the day in court would happen? You mean be, why? In other words, why would Trump appointed judges rule against him? Is that the question? No, I, my, my question is if there is evidence, where do you like? So you said, oh, we should let them have their day in court. Like, what? What? I mean, the Supreme Court said there isn't evidence. Federal court said there wasn't evidence. State court said there wasn't evidence. I didn't say that. They just you did. Said, you they said, were, I mean, they refused to look at the evidence. They rejected him on standing. So but, that brings us to the, the first part of, court, of 
Forrest's question about the motivation for Trump appointed judges to do that. To wait, Trump motivation to do what? To appoint those judges? Uh, sorry, no, no, no. The the appointment for for judges who were Republicans who were appointed by Trump, right? Uh, to uh, to to reject that, right? Like in other words, like uh, even if they're just making decisions based on on standing, like is. Uh, it seemed like in part of what you were saying earlier, you were suggesting that they were making these, uh, these decisions, uh, you know, because like they were just like not willing to look at the evidence because they had something to hide or something. But you'd think that if they're Trump appointed Republican judges, like if anything, what they would want is to find reasons that Trump won. Yeah. Um, and to do the most they could to assist with that. I mean, winning Okay, at that point. Okay. So, I don't know what's in the minds of those all those judges. I do know this, that many, many people who Trump appointed to all sorts of positions, right, even in his own cabinet, and many judges have become anti-Trump, right? Trump had all kinds of people running around the White House and in, and in judge positions who became basically anti-Trump, or they certainly didn't follow him down many of his paths, right? Now, this is actually something I'm glad you asked this because this is what I was sort of didn't say. And I think a lot of people on the left might appreciate this. So why would the Supreme Court and all these other courts, these federal courts, not even want to look at this thing? Not even want to look at it. Okay, well, let's say they did. And let's say it turns out it's true that they did, that the Democratic Party did steal the election from Donald Trump. Okay, you know what's going to happen then? The destruction, not just of the Democratic Party, the destruction of the American empire. Because the Democratic Party created the empire. That's their baby. That's why they've been doing everything they possibly can to get him out of office since day one. That was an operation by the FBI and the CIA and the NSA, right? It was about the, all the intelligence agencies getting Trump out of there because he was asking questions about NATO. Because so what, he, Trump, what Trump actually did in office uh, was, um, you know, rip up the Iran deal, uh, get rid of the few restrictions on the drone program that have been put in, you know, late, you know, late, by, late by Obama. I didn't um, say he was a peacenik. Wait, I didn't say he was a peacenik, but he is skeptical of the American empire. That is very clear. And it's very clear whether that's true or not, the establishment believes he was a threat to the American empire. Am I right about that? Uh, I think at certain points they did, yeah. I think, I think that they were corrected as it went on, but yeah. Existential threat, right? So again, right, and it's not just the Democrats, it's also the establishment Republicans who are anti-Trump who were in league with the Democrats in squashing the investigation into the election, right? That's why Trump's so pissed off is because all these Republican governors and, you know, all these Republican office holders around the country have also been like, no, 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 it didn't happen. It is an existential threat to the entire American empire, guys, because if we discredit the Democratic Party and the Republican establishment, then what standing does the United States of America have in the rest of the world? How can we ever again say that we are here to export democracy? How can we ever say that, right? That we stand for the people's voice. It's, well, a, it's the whole project, the whole 250 year project of building this massive American empire, which was 
almost entirely a liberal slash progressive project, by the way, that the Republicans just went along with. Okay. I mean, well, I, mean I, I think the Bush administration certainly did a whole lot more than they, they went along with it. They went along with it. Going along with it. I mean, they, they dramatically uh, expanded, you know, ex expanded it. They did stupidly. So what did, what was Obama's criticism of the Iraq war? Not that it was a, uh, not that it was a bad idea to go in and change other people's cultures and civilizations. He's, what did he say? He said it was dumb, 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 because it discredited the United States, which it did, because it was it was not the smart way to go about building up. We agree here, right, that these guys are all Sure, but, but of course, Obama, like a lot of other Bush inventions, like the drone war, like it, it's, you know, Bush, you know, like it, in that case, look, there's certainly been times when Republican Democrats have expanded, uh, you know, empire, talk about the Vietnam War or whatever, and the Republicans have gone along with it, but there have definitely been times that Republicans have expanded empire and uh, and, and Democrats have, have, have been the ones maybe passively going along with it or thinking certain parts that were dumb, but, you know, liking other parts, you know, like it's, this is a, this is a bipartisan project. I think that whether, um, you know, I think that, I think that it's certainly true that in 2016, uh, the, uh, the, you know, like a lot of uh, establishment Republicans uh, saw, you know, saw Trump as a big, big threat. Like I remember there was a, uh, there's a Matt Taibbi uh, column back then with a beautiful line in it about the difference between Trump and uh, George W. Bush. We were told that, you know, how strange it was to be told that, you know, Trump was, you know, could be elected because he was too stupid because, come on, remember George W. Bush. They said the difference is that uh, George W. Bush was, you know, Bush was their moron, whereas Trump seemed like he might be his own moron. Uh, and, and I think that that does accurately reflect a lot of establishment anxieties in 2016. Uh, and that, you know, that, that set the stage for a lot of the animosity, you know, with the so-called intelligence community later. But also, I think if you look at 2020, the Republican establishment thoroughly lined up behind uh, Donald Trump uh, in uh, in that election. So I'm very skeptical of this idea that they uh, that there's there's some long series of you know Trump appointed judges who were rejected standing not on the grounds they didn't have standing. The Republican governors who were saying, uh, "No, your claim about the voting that happened in my state is bullshit," not because it was bullshit, but uh, but because they wanted Joe Biden to win so badly. If it were proved in court that the Democratic Party stole the 2020 election, can you guys, I can't even imagine the cataclysm for the political class in this country. But it probably <laughs> wouldn't be proved that they stole the election. They would probably find individual people who acted on their own, you know, volition or were told to do something, and it probably wouldn't go up that high. And then like, let's say, I mean, just taking the, the thing of like, let's say that actually did happen, like they would throw the individual people to the wolves. They probably wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't discredit the Democratic Party necessarily. I mean, I don't know. I I, I just don't see, I, I just don't see uh, like enough of a, a motivation on, on their side. Also, the Democrats could have done a lot more with impeachment. They kind of kept procedurally bringing the, the rules of like the list of like what Trump, what they claim Trump actually did down further and further there were like way up like a whole bunch of the whole list of things that they could have before i love you but it's it's a quarter after 10. okay, okay. I, don't, I don't want to get off into a new rabbit hole on impeachment uh but uh <laughs> but look that i really appreciate this this is uh the, the the list of things that we disagree about would uh would not be a short one uh but uh but it's a very interesting conversation as i knew it would be Good. uh 
you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're very committed here to uh, platforming interesting people, not just uh, not just people I agree with. So, oh no, platforming, you're gonna get canceled. Oh, uh, oh yeah, any minute now. Don't worry. It's beginning. Right. It's beginning of this interview that I'm gonna get canceled. By the way. Yeah. All no. right. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, that. All right. Peace. All right. Uh, so we have uh, the uh, the Biden. Um, you know the Biden update uh, to uh, to to get to, and um, uh, think maybe a couple other things uh, before we uh, before we wrap up for the uh, for the day. Uh, I'm I'm not going to you know I, I think it's a little uh, it's a little classless to uh, um, you know to uh, shit talk people after they leave. I'll say I'll say that I have not been brought around to postmodernism, but. Uh, <laughs> But he didn't answer my my question the way that I was trying to. Ask. Oh, the the election the election question. Well, no. So I wasn't trying to ask about the evidence of it. I was just trying to ask if if the Supreme uh, Court, okay. federal court, and state courts are not to be trusted with this, then who? What court? You know what I mean? Like, where would he see the the court process playing out? Anyway, I it's like. Yeah, well, well, I I I think he, I think to be charitable about that, I think probably his position is that. Um, uh, is not so much that there is a day in court that could still happen, but just that it should have happened. I mean that that, that yeah. No, I, that's how I took his. That's yeah. how I took his point. I but they. I mean, it's not like there was no evidence, and then they were just like, "We're going to throw this out." Like that's not what happened. Well, anyway, I don't want to get down a rabbit hole with this. I just. Well, I, I mean, I look. Obviously, I don't think. Um, I mean, I don't like. It's one of those things that's tricky at the moment too, because like. Uh, you know, I, I certainly don't believe the claim that the, uh, the evidence, you know, hasn't been, uh, been vetted, uh, you know, but, um, you know, but also like, I'm, you know, clearly I'm not Sam Cedar. I don't like live, sleep, you know, breathe and eat, you know, the, um, the like, um, fine grain details of the, yeah. uh, of the, of the election stuff. I will say based on everything that I've seen, I think that the data is pretty pathetic, uh, but that's a, that's a judgment, right? Like I, I can't, um, you know, I'm not really like prepared to make that case in, uh, you know, in, in, in great detail. I think there are a lot of people who are, I think there are a lot of people who've done that in writing and said, look, we've vetted the evidence, you know, here's, here's why there's not much there that, you know, you have mm -hmm. like, you know, 10,000 affidavits, but 9,000 of them or somebody complaining, they saw a black guy look at them funny at the polling place. Uh, yeah. so, you know, I mean, again, that would be that would be my take on there. But it's up to the the judges, like it's up to judges to decide what's you know reasonable and what's not. And uh, I don't know. It just seems like it's gone through enough parts of it. Like if if it got stopped at the state level, completely. You know what I mean? Like like Trump files a suit, they they throw it out, and then nobody will appeal it. Like I can understand being skeptical, but it's just like each time they have to vet that evidence um, in their own court and then decide whether or not it's worth you know hearing everything out but you know what i mean anyway i it's not important because it's not something that even if you know even if they did prove tomorrow that the democrats had cheated like it's not like anything would change you know what i mean but like well, I, I right i mean that's that's the part where like i mean if anything obviously you know as i said at the end you know there's a long list there's even a long list related to the election uh but i think that uh, i'm not i'm not someone that really feels the need to like challenge people's conspiracy theories or skepticism theories like 
necessarily always head on. I just always have questions about like, you know what I mean? Like I'm always looking for like a, like how many holes I can kind of find in the boat of like, yeah, right. No, I, I gotcha. And, and like I said, I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not going to, you know, left media is full of people who, who I think would uh, jump on that and have, and like they would have uh, hours of stuff to cite, you know, as we mm-hmm. uh, look, what about this report? You know, what about that one? You know, you're just wrong about the data. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I've got some general reasons. Uh, you put your finger on one with the Republican judges and governors. Uh, I, I've got a bunch of others that I expressed to that about, you know, just sort of how to think about conspiracy theories in general, that just because some political actor is malicious or just because they would have something to gain, if that was enough to start believing the conspiracy theory, that would just like, you know, I mean, we'd just be believing in conspiracy theories all day and all night. Yeah. But, I, I, uh, I challenge also the idea that the democratic party is competent enough to pull off uh, election fraud. I, I just like, look at, look at, I mean, I don't want to bring up impeachment as like a conversation, but just like, look at how, inept their impeachment you know what i mean like like pelosi wouldn't even hear out like a long list of other complaints that people would have had because it would have challenged the status quo too much to to like oh yeah, 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 the emoluments the, the emolu- yeah. right because so I, I just don't so yeah, i don't that, that is actually true and quite separate from the fad thing i think that's i think that's like always worth spending a second on to spell yeah, out but, but his but his like the context he built around it was about their competence and how sinister it is. Anyway, I we should pivot yeah. to the Biden update. Yeah, we, we, should, we, like. we, should, we, we should, but like I, I think the last right. point, I think the last point is just right about the, uh, you know, that like the emoluments clause, the Constitution. You know, you're not allowed to enrich yourself, you know, from uh, from for being an mm-hmm. off, you know, that you can't. No, he he, he like, very clearly did on like day one. You know what no, I mean? Like seriously, like you know, yeah. like you know, people stay in Trump hotels for everything. Yeah, no, was, Saudi Saudi diplomats were like caught on tape telling other like diplomats hey like if you want to get in this good side take out a whole floor of like trump hotel suites <laughs> no exactly so like i think the like the emoluments clause thing would have been the easiest possible thing to prove it wouldn't it wouldn't have left any of the sort of like republican defenses in the two impeachment trials that actually happened like it would have left like nothing standing from either one yeah. Uh, but if, so, of course, why did they do it? Well, they didn't do it because if you're going to open that door, right, to like, mm-hmm. oh, uh, who's in, who who here is enriching themselves in office? That's not a discussion. That look at, look at Pelosi and Tesla. Pelosi yeah. and her husband have bought massive amounts of stocks in Tesla. If she's the one that's like the congressperson for Silicon, like one of the congresspeople for like the Silicon Valley area, you know what I mean? Like that tech area, like that's, you know what I mean? Like that would, like that instantaneously would open her to a challenge from Republicans on that. Um, Anyway, I I just, uh, you know, it's all about, I mean, it's building the case on it kind of, and then kind of for me, my interest in stuff isn't necessarily a debate because like, I'm not necessarily like the most evidence-based person. Like you said, like, you know what I mean? Like I'm not necessarily like, putting on like lists of things together of, of like facts and exact statistics and everything like that. But I'm, I am always curious. I mean, I know so many fucking people that buy into different conspiracy theories and I'm always interested in just hearing out kind of, and then trying to poke some like poke holes in it when people say things that. Which, which, which is the only way you could possibly like, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I think um, a lot of the people you're talking about, like in your life or whatever, uh, you know, there's probably not a lot you can do to bring them around, but the uh, yeah. but to, to the extent that you can, it's by poking those holes. You know, it's certainly not by like 
you know, I mean, well, I think, okay, one last comment about the conversation we just finished having that like, that's, I think that, I think that you got a little sense in that conversation of how I think a lot of the tech censorship and stuff backfires, you know, cause, cause, you know, cause like that just um, gives people the impression, Oh, there's some like, you know, like, like, like there's some incredibly hot truth here that, you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, with the COVID stuff too, like, you know what I mean? Like taking down certain posts about, you know, COVID that are misinformation, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, what are they hiding? It's like, I, I don't know. I, exactly. For me, it's like proving it the other way. Like you have to prove that there's something that's hiding. Like just being skeptical isn't enough for me. Like, you know what I mean? Like you have to provide something that they would be like, I don't know. Yeah. And, and I sh- oh, actually also um, somebody in the chat asked about, um, I think they asked this a couple times about uh, Zizek and, um, and how like Zizek's version of ideology critique uh, you know, might actually be like similar to postmodernism. So maybe I had, I'd have some of the same problems with it. And I think I know what the person is saying this, like is, is, is getting at, uh, I'm not sure, like, I, you know, I think it is actually kind of different, uh, that, um, you know, that certainly I don't think it, it comes with the same sort of, uh, skepticism, you know, about, um, you know, about truth or knowledge. Uh, I, I think that it's, and I think that, you know, Zizek certainly is willing to, uh, to assert some, um, you know, to like assert some, some like big things, right? I mean, like, uh, like actually this is probably the biggest difference, right? That, uh, you know, Jean-Francois Leotard, who we didn't get to, right? I mean, we've talked for almost two hours. We didn't even get to Derrida, but you know, they have a, a Leotard. I wanted to pull up that, uh, that, that video of, um, of Jordan Peterson explaining Derrida to, to, to Joe Rogan. I just thought that would, that would have been a really funny thing to pull up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. <laughs> well, if we have him back on, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Cause that would be, that would be funny. Uh, there's but, this guy, there's this guy, Derrida. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but like, you know, um, you know, Leotard said uh, that, uh, you know, postmodernism is all about, you know, uh, you know, like skepticism of or allergy to meta narratives, you know, sort of like, you know, like, like the sort of like big grand claims about like history and causation and stuff like that. But of course, look, uh, Zizek clearly doesn't have that. I mean, he's willing to, you know, I mean, Marxism is the, the biggest, you know, like historical meta narrative ever, you know, and, and, and he's willing to co-sign that. So uh, none of the, which is to, none of which is to say that I think there might not be like real disagreements there. Uh, and, and um, if, you know, I hope when, uh, Zizek comes back on, you know, he was on at the end of, uh, last year, but you know, when he comes back on the show, maybe we could get into some of that. Although I will say that, um, you know, interviewing Zizek is not like, um, I, I think you just sort of have to be kind of Zen about that and let go of the illusion of control that, you know, you're going to be able to yeah. have conversation too much. That's why I liked your idea of doing like a film, a Zizek, like film stream and kind of talking about, like, yeah, yeah. No, I, would love, part of it. I would love to have Zizek on for one of the uh, the movie live streams. That would be the most amazing <laughs> thing ever. But uh, Nero, the Nero says the most importantly, <laughs> <laughs> and that this is crucial. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so let's uh, before we uh, do the uh, the Biden update, you want to do uh, play the uh, the preview for the um, uh, the patron episode for Thursday? Yeah. Um, hold on one second. Um, I, uh, I kind of, I kind of cut in, um, 
I, I cut in some of the uh, some ContraPoints footage into it too, and was interested to see what everybody thought of doing it that way. Yeah, cool. So yeah, this is uh, to set this up. Uh, so Liza Featherstone, who's been um, a guest on the show, actually she was on the very first episode of the show uh, uh, before, and and she's she's been on a couple of uh, live streams. She's a, a columnist for Jacobin. Uh, but what we're talking about is a, a big article, like an article that she just wrote for the Nation, which is like a big in depth um, profile on uh, Natalie Wynn, you know, counterpoints. Uh, so we're just going to play, I think, about five minutes of it now. Originally, I mean, I, I started, well, I got interested in her for the same reasons that a lot of us get interested in her because she was, um, she was, she was really the um, only person making really um, um, prominent and um, dramatic um, arguments against people like Jordan Peterson. I mean, sometimes boys just need a daddy and sometimes girls do too. But there's a big problem here. And the problem is that all of this life coaching is basically just a Trojan horse for a reactionary political agenda. And um, and so I was really fascinated by that, and um, and um, and in and encountering a lot of um, you know people who followed her, um, which was reassuring because we know a lot of people also follow Jordan Peterson and fans no. of numbskulls. Um, and so I was so I, I so I got really curious about her and watched more and more of her videos and um, and just um, found her. Um, her her aesthetic really compelling and her kind of um her you know commitment to rational argument really unusual and inspiring on the internet and um and you know was you know just um, really curious about her and um and so as I was um my relationship with the nation was changing into one where they wanted me to do a lot more interviews and profiles with people, which I love doing and don't get to do that much of otherwise. So it was a good, um, yeah. So it was a good, um, so, so, so it was one of the, so it was one of the ones early on um, in that early on in that change in my role there, we had, our, the editors and I had our sights set on me interviewing Natalie Wynn, but it was sort of hard because, um, at, I mean, it was hard to find a time at first because she's um, she she is very busy. She has a very pro a specific production schedule, um, and um, and then periodically um, she would go um, out of she would fall out of communication um, because of some crisis like being canceled or something right. and um and um, and then um, and then we were actually we were just about to um do the interview around this time last year um and um and then there was lockdown and i couldn't go to baltimore which i was i had been planning to like you know do a real profile where you like hang out with the person and you know go to their favorite you know, because yeah, yeah. you know, wouldn't that that would be so fun to do with her, right? Right. Oh, totally. I, 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 and so that was sort of my dream was this going to be like a real, like a real profile. Um, and, you know, and, you know, where and where you physically describe the person and, you know, all that stuff. 
um, because she, um, unlike, you know, most political people that we're interested in, you know, she looks interesting right. <laughs> and she has like a real aesthetic going on and like there's something to describe. You know, a lot of times I do these yeah. kinds of profiles and, you know, I interview somebody and they're just like a government official or like a politician and the editor is like, what did they look like? And I'm like, I don't know, who cares? <laughs> but, you know, but Natalie's really striking and she puts right. a lot of effort and um, work into her appearance. Yeah. So, you know, you do, you do want to do that kind of actual rich description with her. So anyway, so I was like, I was so excited. And I was going to go to Baltimore and then there was, um, there was lockdown and, you know, my husband and I are like, no, not youthful. And, you know, so we were just like, oh no, like, we're just, we're going to die. So, um, so we, um, so, so I had to, I had to cancel it. And, um, and then a few days later, everyone was canceling everything. Um, yeah. and, um, and, uh, um, and then, um, yeah. And, and then they got, um, they got, they got back in touch, um, or, or rather, um, I'm, I'm saying they, not because that's the pronoun Natalie uses, she doesn't, um, but, um, but she had, um, but yeah, it's her yeah, some, had some assistant or people yeah. <laughs> like who, who email for her, <laughs> and um, so um, so then, yeah. so then we we finally did get to do the the profile um, over Zoom um, this fall, and um, and because um, because she is um, so interesting, it still went pretty well, even though uh, we couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, should also say uh, that uh, you know she she said the uh, she was talking about the early COVID stuff, said oh no you know uh, we're gonna die and so uh, Liza Featherstone definitely not dying of COVID she actually just had her second shot uh, that that was actually a uh, the that interview was a little bit delayed because of the uh, the second vaccination but uh, but anyway but you know it was a really interesting discussion you know we 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 got into um, like a lot about. Um, you know, persuasion and, and the way that, um, you know, and, and the way that Natalie's videos, you know, try, you know, like, like sort of work at, you know, persuasion and how that's different from a lot of what the left does and, and the ways that like, uh, intra-left, like sort of personality conflicts get coded as intra-left, like, you know, substantive political conflicts. Um, so, uh, really interesting discussion. If you want to watch that, uh, listen to it. Uh, in the podcast version, uh, go to patreon.com uh, slash, uh, slash Ben Burgess. Uh, and uh, five, uh, five bucks a month, uh, you, get, um, uh, you get the, uh, the weekly uh, Thursday uh, bonus episodes. Uh, so you, know, you get an extra episode every single week. Uh, you get access to the Discord server. You get monthly uh, Sopranos recap uh, bonus episodes. Uh, with um, Nando Vila, uh, Wazdi Lambre, and uh, Mike Racine. The next one of those is uh, going to go up for patrons on uh, Tuesday, actually. So that's, uh, yeah, tomorrow night. Um, and, uh, and then you also get regularly scheduled, at least once a month, uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats. Uh, and you, uh, you also... Uh, and I think we're also starting, you know, we've only done one so far, but I think we're going to make this a monthly thing. Uh, doing you know Discord uh, movie nights, you know we uh, watch a movie with patrons. Yeah, uh, that was that was really fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, please do, uh, please do consider doing that if you can. Uh, remember, uh, even if you, uh, even if you can't, even if you can't swing the five bucks a month, trust me, I get it. I've been there, but, uh, you know, like, and subscribe here on YouTube, uh, and, um, rate and review wherever you get podcasts. Those things really do help, uh, for, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is the, uh, this is the Democrat thumbs up, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the Clinton, the Clinton yeah, thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> But like Obama did that too, the the weird like thumbs up that doesn't look like a normal gesture that a human would make. Yeah. Well, Bill Clinton did it with the lip bite. That's what he he's like. <laughs> he was like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Obama didn't do the lip biting, but I think they've got some consultant who trains them all to do that. That like somehow, because I think the idea is that like pointing is too hostile. So the you know, mm -hmm. and even, I don't know why just doing normal thought. I don't know, but whatever. For some reason, this is drone this striking. Thing. Fine, you know. Given the the point, a little too hostile. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll do the Biden update. Yeah, let's throw up the the Biden update graphic. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> I love I this. I love it. it's, just, it's just how I feel waking up every day in Biden's America. <laughs> um. All right, so we're gonna, you know, since since we talked about the minimum wage not being in the COVID relief bill, um, I thought it might be a Good to touch on what did survive the Senate's uh, very, very contentious, what, uh, 50 to 49 vote, um, you know, like Senate vote the other day, the other night, I guess, because Joe Manchin kind of pushed it into the early hours of the morning. I remember seeing the like the notification at like 1 or 2 a.m. that they had finally passed it or something. And, uh, you know, Joe Manchin kind of held it hostage, which I, I think that there are a million ways to deal with someone like Joe Manchin. I don't think he's a very strong um, political force. So the fact that Democrats aren't dealing with him in, in, in any of those ways, aren't using the bully pulpit or any other, you know, any, anything like that kind of shows that they're not really committed to a lot of these, um, you know, to the, to the figures that they've come up with, despite the fact that they're always touting them. But um, all right. So um, the first thing, obviously that, that made it through is some form of stimulus check. Although, you know, part of Joe Manchin, um, part of Joe Manchin's whole uh, thing was was making sure that it was means tested beyond belief. So direct payments for millions of Americans, um, anybody making up to 75,000 gets the full check or couples making up to 150,000 per year. Um, yeah, you know, and that's also worth mentioning here. That, um, the way that they're telling who makes that much money is based on the uh, the 2019 tax returns that were filed uh, in yeah. 2020, which is of course worthless because uh, we were going through, you know, we had this unprecedented uh, economic crisis, you know, when uh, when when COVID started, uh, and a shit ton of people lost their jobs. You know, there were all kinds of economic ripple effects. So, uh, so like just the fact that somebody, all of which is just a long way of saying the fact that somebody made. Uh, you know, some fact that somebody made X number of dollars in 2019 does not at all necessarily mean that they're actually making that much money now. Yeah. And uh, there's a really good article in Jacobit about it. There's absolutely no reason to means test the stimulus checks that quotes Bernie saying um, all working class people deserve the full 1400 last I heard. So he said uh, 55,000 because that was the figure I think at the time, but you know, 75,000 just as much. It's still a middle class. You're still in, in a middle class uh, bracket at that point. Even, even if I don't think it should be means tested at all. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. I think everybody, regardless of how much they make, 
should get obviously the full 2000, but you know, the 1400, but yeah, I mean, so the, the decision means that 17 million Americans who received a check under Trump won't get one under Biden, according to a study from the nonpartisan Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy. Horrible fucking optics. First of all, like, let's talk about that just from like a um, how can Democrats retain control of the of, of any really part of Congress? But, you know, how can they retain control of the Senate that the optics of that are fucking terrible? Like more no, I mean, you million voters who got a check from Trump, not a check from Biden. And I, all of the like that's just like uh, quite apart from all the standard lefty reasons to be against means testing. Like that's just politically. Yeah. Insane. But I mean, politically, political language is the language they speak. You know what I mean? Like the, I mean, like, you know, the Democratic Party. So another thing I kind of wanted to point out was the fact that um, the $75,000 figure, uh, Biden claims that over 85% of American households will get the full amount, which means that over 85% of American households make uh, like $75,000 or less, or if they're, you know, a couple, $150,000 or less. That is not... <laughs> that's also not something that's out in a um in the richest country in the history of the world um so i thought that was an interesting i thought that was an interesting statistic the other day i was reading that 63 percent of uh americans right now are living paycheck to paycheck um through this pandemic yeah, I, I would also say just uh that on because i know that there's like a certain kind of like liberal viewer who'd say no, no no but wait a second if you look at all this other stuff that was also in the relief package even though there, there's 17 million people who got a check from trump but aren't getting a check from biden uh there's all this other good stuff in there that's going to benefit them so like they'll really benefit more anyway and all i would say to that is listen to yourself and then ask whether you actually believe that 17 million voters are going to be making all these complicated calculations about yeah. no if you really think about it you know, you're better off or whether they're just going to say, hey, I got a check from Trump. I didn't get a check from Biden. Yeah. Biden's and, it, and it was a brilliant move on Trump's part because obviously he has the political instincts that they lack despite not being a politician for most of his life, like putting his name on the checks. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. was, was a fucking brilliant move on his part. Um, so, of course, the, the next thing, I guess, is the, the child tax credit. Um, you know, so it raises the child tax credit from $1,000 to $3,000 per uh, child. And, you know, it's even more for families with young children. They can receive a credit of 3600 for each child under age six. I mean, it's refundable tax credits. That's still not a, you know what I mean? Like, that's still not money handed to. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Like, well, like it's, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but it is, it's insane that, like, that it's being... Like it's accepting this right wing framing that you can only give people money if you like package it as a tax cut. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's also like, you know, before we all, you know, uh, strain ourselves, patting ourselves on the back about, you know, about all the poverty this is going to cut, like, okay, that's, that's put that back up. How, how much money per year per child? Yeah. So it ends up being, um, if, if your child is, uh, over six, it's three thousand, and it's uh, um, yeah, that's three yeah, thousand six hundred if you have children under six. So and, and that's and that's for the whole year. And you're means testing children now, like look yeah. at my age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Nope, sorry, they just turned six. You know, six hundred <laughs> for you. Uh, but um, yeah, just just nuts. But uh, but like also, okay. I mean, yes, the 
I mean, first of all, the fact that it takes so little money to to cut like you know the the poverty rate that much, yeah, so amazing about the fact that nobody bothered to you know to do it. Uh, until, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's like you know it's thrown into a bill like oh this will this will like cut it by half. Like all right, we'll cut it by the full fucking thing. That's not even a standalone bill. Yeah, but but also like if you've done like what Rashida Tlaib wanted, which uh, which I believe was um, to have like an initial two thousand dollar check and then a thousand a month, uh, you know, after that, you know, until until the end of the pandemic, until everybody's vaccinated, uh, then Jesus Christ! I mean, if uh, if 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 three thousand bucks in a you know child tax credit is going to do that much to counter poverty, uh, how much would you know? How much would uh, would that do like if if when when Rashida first uh, proposed that like about a year ago, you know like like every you know like that would be in, uh you know we'd be up to like uh, was it like thirteen thousand dollars or so by now? Yeah, uh, it also that, laid a fire under both states, and it would uh, light a fire under both states and drug companies that would be providing these vaccines. They're going to want to get you know what I mean? Like they're they're going to want to get the vaccines out to people as fast as possible. And, you know, you see all these like weird vaccine distribution schemes that are going on, especially, I mean, in New York is a good example of it, but like, you know, like a lot of these are going to fall through. Um, I don't think that would be the case if we were getting a monthly check. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and again, it's, it's, it seems like the easiest call ever. Like it, it wouldn't even like Jesus, like it wouldn't even be that much you know, money in the great scale of, you know, of, of government spending, uh, and that, like, you you have, like, this is just sort of the, uh, you know, like the bare minimum of sanity that, like, yeah, that, yeah, of course, you have this, uh, this deadly virus that is stopping tons of people uh, from, uh, from being able to, uh, you know, from being able to do, to go to work safely uh, and engage in normal activities, you know, whether it be, you know, all this stuff, like, yeah, of course, like, you know, give, you know, give everybody a check and keep giving them a check at least, you know, in, uh, you know, in, until it's over, uh, you know, but of course, I mean, the, the reason, you know, they didn't want to do that, uh, was that, um, was, you know, I mean, whatever, like, I mean, I, I just, just, I mean, I know this makes me sound like the most like predictable, you know, lefty ever, but I mean, like it really does just boil down to, uh, wait a second, you know, you can't give people too much money or then, you know, then they won't be, uh, they won't be eager to race back to work, you know, to, uh, to accept yeah. wages. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It's, it's, that's why it really fucking pisses me off when Democrats turn around and go, Oh, like we are, we are listening to the science. We're the party of science. We believe in science. The, the, the science, like the scientifically smart, like smart thing to do would be to give people a monthly check, let people stay home. The virus would have been, you know, if people aren't going places, like obviously some people would still have the virus because like some people aren't going to listen to whatever people put out there. But like for the most part, you know, the people that are going out and like spreading the virus are the people that are going to work. You know what I mean? Like they're, yeah. they're going to, to labor under conditions that they're not protected. They're not, um, you know, they're, they're not given the, the same protections as everyone else. They probably don't want to go to work. You know what I mean? Like, but, but like they, they have to obviously under the system, the scientifically smartest thing to do would be to make sure that as many people as possible are able to stay home through this entire pandemic. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. And then you don't even need to do a lot of those. Like, I mean, we like rushed vaccine schemes that seem to be <laughs> exceedingly yeah. failing. Um, so, so 
yeah. yeah. No, that's uh, – so, yeah, you want to uh, you want to do one more point from the bill? Yeah. So, I guess the last um, important point is uh, the unemployment uh, insurance, which, once again – I mean, so this is where Joe Manchin's whole thing um, came in. He didn't want to give people $400 a week – $400 a week that were unemployed, which is the, um, which is the house bill had that he wants to give people $300 a week. So they cut it by a hundred dollars, which is really interesting because Trump's, uh, Trump's unemployment insurance, like the, the cares act, you know what I mean? Like that he got to put his name on was $600 a week. Then Trump kind of cut it by an executive order down to 400. Then the, the last, whatever, like, you know, when they, it's like 400, but 300 was federal and 100 was state. And then they kind of cut the 100 that was state. And now they've just it's just a flat 300 this time, which you'd think the Democrats would want to raise it a little, at least a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, like Republicans just can just turn around and say, under Trump, you were getting $600 a week. I mean, I don't think they will, but like, you know, so that's uh, that's kind of an interesting one that I wanted to talk yeah. about. Yeah, no, for uh, for sure. And you know a lot of this stuff too. You know this is this is one of the things that um, uh, that I was um, you know that I was talking about on uh, on, on Katie Halper uh, last uh, last night before we uh, you know we got into a long argument about voting. But uh, then uh, we like a lot of this stuff. I think that, and I think this is going to be like the general shape of the next four years um, that. There's going to be, there's this like constant back and forth where the left talks about how uh, you know like everything that Biden you know could and should be doing that he's not doing, and uh, you know that the liberals revert back to uh, to what they always you know what they were doing for eight years under under Obama, which is to say oh you know this is like Green Lanternism. You think that the president can do anything if they want they want it bad enough. You know you silly leftists. You don't understand how politics works and. A lot of this stuff, like, um, hey, it's a philosophy-heavy episode anyway. Let's just throw this in there. Uh, there's uh, Harry Frankfurt as a uh, 20th century uh, philosopher who uh, who writes about uh, wrote about uh, free will, and moral responsibility, and you know he's he's got all these famous um, these like famous thought experiments that are supposed to show that um, you can be in control of something in the right way for it to be your fault even if you're not in control, the sense that there's something different you could have done, which is counterintuitive, but he's got interesting examples that are supposed to show it. But like the reason I keep thinking about this uh, is that this is um, like everything that's a lot of this stuff, right? And of course, look, obviously the Republicans exist, you know, that's 49 votes in the Senate. You know, mansion and cinema exist. Uh, the filibuster, you know, exists. All this stuff is true, right? And there are, for different ones of these, there are different arguments we can have about how much Biden, the Democratic leadership, could be doing to overcome these obstacles. But like, also, and this this gets us to the Frankfurt point. I don't know how relevant all that is because it's like, look. Look at Joe Biden's entire fucking career. You know, we went over, you know, like, uh, you know, what is it, like a month ago. Um, look at Chuck Schumer's entire career. Look at Nancy Pelosi's entire career. These people are acting on their preferences, right? It might be true that they really have some of these obstacles. And it's, you know, it's complicated. I think it's like, 
true in some cases. It's kind of bullshit in other cases. Like they could just fire the Senate parliamentarian if they wanted to, or have yeah. Harris overrule him. Like that's and yeah, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of Biden's term. It's not like you know what I mean. Like the 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 pushback he'd get, as in like, you know, oh well, if you if you fired the Senate par- par- uh, parliamentarian, like we could just run against you next time and say, look, Biden like ran like a king. He could do whatever he wants. By by the time that you know, by the time that anyone used some kind of example like that, it'll be, you know, it's four years oh, in the future. Uh, I- I mean, I also don't really buy that there's going to be a big upsurge of voters who give a shit one way or the other about the Senate yeah. parliamentarian or who have ever heard of the Senate parliamentarian before the last week. Well, uh, it's, but, it's about building a case. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's not about yeah, anybody yeah. giving a shit about the Senate parliamentarian, but it's more about like, you know, because they try to do this under Obama and it didn't work. And then liberals try to do this under Trump. It's like, oh, they're, they're you know, they're governing like a king or an emperor or whatever when they start, you know what I mean? Pushing their power too much. Well, I mean, but there's always a lot of that all around. I'm not mm-hmm. questioning how much voters really care about that. But like the, the whole thing is too, it's like, yeah, we can have complicated arguments about what they could or should be doing in some cases. I think like the parliamentarian thing, I think that's like a really easy case. They totally could have just like, I mean, that's like saying, like that's like saying, that's like driving a tank and there's like a little rubber cone in the street and said, oh, I guess we can't drive past yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, but there are other things where it's like, yeah, look, uh, you know, I, you know, like the bad shit thing, like that's hard. Like the last primary challenge against goods, bad shit was crushed, you know? So it's like, there are real obstacles. That's true. But the thing is, like, all of these claims, the Democrats can't do this, that, or the other thing because of these obstacles. I think they're all kind of half true, half false, and entirely irrelevant because yeah. the reason that they're acting the way that they're acting uh, is not, for the most part, that obstacles. It's not like, by, you know, it's not like. Um, you know, it, it's not like Biden and Chuck Schumer would be governing like Bernie and AOC if, you know, if not for these obstacles. Mm-hmm. This is who they are. I, I disagree that the mansion thing is hard. It's I don't think it is. Um, what, I, what do you think we should be doing about, uh, like, like, do you think that, like... So, specifically for Manchin, I don't think it would work with cinema or somebody like that, but Manchin knows he's walking this very thin, tightrope walk. You know what I mean? Like, down, down a path where... You know, most people that are Republicans just want to vote for a Republican. They don't want to vote for Joe Manchin. You know what I mean? Like he has a certain in West Virginia, he has a certain understanding that voters believe that he's going to fight for them in a certain way. So but if if somebody were to go around on the bully pulpit and just say this is the person holding things up, not like they're doing kind of in the media where they're just like, oh, you know, we have Bernie Sanders and we have Joe Manchin, like two sides of like, no, if you were to go around and say, Joe Manchin is the reason why you're not getting this. Joe Manchin is the reason why you're not getting this. We want to raise the minimum wage. Joe Manchin is stopping it. If if, if Biden were to use the bully pulpit like that, I, I think Joe Manchin specifically would fold. Um, I, he I, 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 the- I mean, I think that might be true. I think that it could be that he would go down with the ship and, you know, in, in confident belief that he would have a new life as a very well-paid corporate lobbyist. Uh, he but- quit every other, like, year, too. But um, he's threatened you know, to quit three times. But, but, but I think the larger point is, um, look, yeah, maybe these things you're talking about would work and maybe they aren't. But, like, it says everything that Biden yeah. is really trying any of this shit. Like, yeah. have, like, like, like he's, not, he's not going to war with Joe Manchin because he doesn't – it's not like Joe Manchin is frustrating his heart's desire that, like, damn it, 
you know, uh, Biden really wants to, you know, give everybody health care and higher wages and all this stuff. Like Biden was the Senate was like the senator from uh, the credit card companies in Delaware. Um, you know, he was VP for eight years, you know, under Obama. Uh, like that it, it's not like he just doesn't have these underlying preferences. And uh, and so I, I think that, um, you know, like, I think that this whole thing about obstruction, obviously it's an argument we need to engage in because it's like there's no avoiding it, you know, and we need to, you know, we need to spend this time. I remember I was talking about this with Megan Day after she was on uh, one of the live streams just after the election and after we went off air, we are talking about how, look, we're probably both going to be writing like so many articles the next four years of the form. Hey, Democrats claim they can't do this, but here's something they could do that yeah. people would be beyond sick of it. But like... So obviously that's an argument that we need to engage with. Uh, but also I think that like we have to recognize that on a level, it's almost beside the point because it's 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 like, you know, sure, even when it is true that there's like obstruction that like they really can't do anything about, like that's not why they're governing like neoliberal centrist shitheads. They're governing like neoliberal centrist centrist shitheads because they are. Yeah. And and a perfect a perfect bellwether. Uh, to look at that is the fact that obviously Manchin and Cinema voted against the minimum wage, but so did Coons, who's like Biden's guy in 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 Congress or in in the Senate. I mean, and so did uh, the other Delaware senator. They they if Biden had come out strongly and said this is something I want in this bill, I, they would have voted with Biden. You know what I mean? Like if if it was a priority that Biden had that he was like this is an essential priority. I, I think that that's kind of a bellwether that you could see because I, I think that. Those are two people that will probably vote vote with Biden if he comes out strongly on anything. You know what I mean? Like he's the Delaware, he's the former Delaware senator. They're the current Delaware senators. I, I think that the fact that they felt comfortable enough, um, the but the fact that they felt comfortable enough voting um, against the minimum wage uh, shows where Biden's priorities are. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so somebody in the chat says Domiki had a guy uh, recently who's running radio ads in West Virginia. Uh, so, uh, target mansion, you know, uh, on the stuff. So, um, so yeah, which, uh, so we could talk about that with her, uh, next, uh, next Monday. Uh, I'll, so, find, I'll find those ads too. Um, nice. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, Namiki Kant's going to be the guest the first half on, uh, on Monday. I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about just now. It's the second half of the episode. I'm uh, going to have uh, Paul Prescott and Kenzo Shibata. So those, those are two uh, uh, socialist uh, teachers union that uh, activists. So you're going to have. I'm really, I'm really excited for that one because I mean, I mean, obviously you teach. My mom was a teacher. My grandma was a teacher. Um, you know, like I mean, they were like they were college professors. Well, my mom teaches. My mom was a substitute teacher all around our school district, but she was also a college professor. And you know, so teachers unions are something that are is definitely feels very close to my heart yeah. i've done uh yeah i mean i had yeah for for two years at uh at rutgers i was on the board of the adjunct uh, professors union there and uh and i have uh i have substitute taught for a couple semesters uh one uh, uh like you know uh you know when i didn't have academic uh, gigs so um one more semester of substitute teaching, I think I would have shot myself in the head. So bad respect for anybody who uh, who <laughs> actually, uh, keeps that up for a long time. Uh, but my mom, uh, my mom started out as a local adjunct professor, and then they laid her off. Which I saw how fucking, you know, how debilitating. I guess that 
that whole process can be. So she came back and was like a, a substitute teacher around our district. And then right before COVID started, she kind of was like, I don't, I can't do this right now and left yeah. for right now. But I don't know. She, she's like, she was very hardworking with, I mean, she does art teaching and like, uh, so I think a union would have done her a lot of good, not just as a, uh, you know, as an employment institution, but as a social institution, um, you know. All right. Uh, so, uh, so, yep, that's going to be on, uh, on Monday, uh, before that on Sunday for, uh, the, uh, debate breakdown, uh, live stream series, uh, Rob Larson, Brett Lengel and I are going to be watching, uh, Michael Albert's, uh, debate, uh, with, uh, the, um, the, the streamer who, uh, despite being an adult man, uh, calls himself destiny. Uh, and, um, and then, uh, before that, on Friday, uh, Jennifer and I are going to be talking about uh, the ship of Theseus and uh, personal identity thought experiments for the Philosophy Friday live stream. And before that, uh, two, uh, two days from now, uh, on, uh, on Wednesday, uh, Forrest and I and uh, Ryan Lake uh, are going to, uh, going to be here at uh, 7 o'clock to, uh, uh, to talk about Cape Fear. Have you, uh, have you rewatched it yet? Yeah. Yeah, I rewatched it the other day. I'm probably gonna rewatch it again tomorrow. Yeah, I'm gonna, longer, I'm gonna watch it longer than I than I remember. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I've watched the entire thing or if I've seen a lot of like a lot of. I feel like I've probably just seen mostly clips and then seen it like on TV and stuff and caught it. Yeah, um, I made I, I made Jen watch the uh, the Simpsons Kate Fear parody uh, last night. <laughs> yeah, that's like it's so spot on in some points. I completely forgot how like. Yeah, I sent you the the thing with Silent Bob is or yeah. Sideshow Bob. Wow, Silent Bob. Sideshow Bob is just sitting there with a cigar and he's laughing, and then Homer behind yeah, yeah. Homer is behind him <laughs> with an even bigger cigar, laughing harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Now that's just too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. All right, well, uh, looking forward to that. I will. Uh, I will see you then. I really appreciate everybody uh, for uh, for coming and watching, keeping us company. Uh, I really like, I should say, uh, no particular shade on, on anybody or, you know, certainly not the host's fault, but every time I'm on a, uh, another show that has live chat, I really appreciate, uh, how, um, uh, like, you know, there's, there's no other way to say it. Like, I really appreciate it, how smart the chat is on this show. So, uh, um, really, really supportive too. Like I did my, you know, I did the first, uh, hour solo last week and people were like, don't worry. I love you. You're doing so good. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Supportive no, they're, here. They're, they're supportive. They're thoughtful. They have good questions. They're, they're yeah. Like, in, you know, they're they're engaged because because like they're interested in what's being talked about. They're they're not just kind of uh, you know flinging shit. You know, uh, like like so many so many chat sections. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so many places are. Uh, so um, so yeah, best chat on YouTube, no doubt about it. Uh, really appreciate all of you guys. Really appreciate people who uh, who asked. Uh, uh, super chat questions, uh, and uh, I will uh, see everybody here at uh, seven o'clock on Wednesday. Left is best. <laughs>